0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, the big story of this week was the firing of Tucker Carlson from Fox News. I normally wouldn't have much to say about this, but this has been such an enormous story, at least for those of us who follow media, and uh, everyone has commented on it, it seems. But no one has made what I consider to be the most important point About all this. So I feel like I have something to add to this conversation, which is otherwise an extraordinarily boring one. I don't know Tucker. I believe we've met twice. I think he interviewed me twice. He was one of my first TV interviews. I don't even know what show that was back in the day. I feel like it was a PBS show. Is that possible? So I think he's interviewed me twice, but not for a very long time. In any case, almost no one has done more. To stoke the fires of Trumpism and populist outrage, than Tucker Carlson in recent years. He's done hour after hour of broadcasts on how the establishment is against you. They are against you, the you being the millions of people in Trump's base who have completely lost trust in institutions. He has been the journalistic foil to Trump's demagoguery. For years. And for that reason alone, it should be obvious I would not be a fan of his. But as a result of the Dominion lawsuit against Fox, we now have several text messages that Carlson sent privately to his colleagues at Fox. These were entered into evidence for the upcoming trial, which was only prevented by Fox agreeing to pay three quarters of a billion dollars in settlement to Dominion for defamation. Uh, In any case, We now have a window onto what Carlson actually felt, and presumably feels, about Donald Trump. In one text, he says, I hate him passionately. This was sent January 4th, just two days prior to the attack on the Capitol. He went on to say, we're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it, because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest, but come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump on the topic of Trump skipping Biden's inauguration. He texted, Hard to believe. So destructive. It's disgusting. I'm trying to look away. Just before the Capitol riot, Carlson wrote, We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. And right after the Capitol was stormed, he texted, Trump has two weeks left. Once he's out, he becomes incalculably less powerful, even in the minds of his supporters. He's a demonic force a destroyer, but he's not going to destroy us. I've been thinking about this every day for four years. Let me read that final line again. He's a demonic force, a destroyer. I've been thinking about this every day for four years. Okay, so here you have someone who has done hundreds of broadcasts supporting Trumpism, pandering to Trumpism, and distorting reality in all the ways you have to distort it, to disregard the danger that Trump posed. And here we see that all the while, Carlson believed that Trump was a demonic force, a destroyer. Now, here's the only point I want to make. This should matter. It should be impossible for Carlson to have an audience after it has been revealed that he's capable of this level. Of dishonesty. Think about it in every other context. Think about the pharmaceutical executive who knows that the drug he's marketing doesn't work or is dangerous, but in public touts it as both safe and effective. Revealing that about a pharmaceutical executive should be the end of that executive's career. This is the very essence of fraud. Now, I highly doubt that these texts were the reason why Carlson got fired from Fox. I guess that remains to be seen, but if I had to bet, I would bet that Carlson pays no price at all for his fraudulence. In fact, I expect him to build an enormous media business once he finds his feet. And that says something quite scary and depressing about our culture, or at least a large part of our culture. But happily, this tawdry business has absolutely nothing to do with today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Tim Maudlin. Tim is a professor of philosophy at NYU and the founder and director of the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics. His interests primarily focus on the foundations of physics, as well as metaphysics and logic, and his books include Quantum Nonlocality and Relativity, Truth and Paradox, The Metaphysics Within Physics, and two volumes on the Philosophy of Physics. Tim has also been a Guggenheim Fellow and he's taught at Rutgers and Harvard, in addition to NYU. And I reached out to Tim almost as an act of continuing education for myself in philosophy. His area of focus in the philosophy of physics and metaphysics has really not been my wheelhouse philosophically, and I had some questions I just wanted to put to him. We talk about the nature of scientific reductionism, emergence, the nature of time, causation, the nature of possibility natural law, David Lewis's possible worlds, rival interpretations of quantum mechanics, we have a long wrestling match over the topic of free will, uh, and touch a few other things here. Anyway, Tim performed a kind of philosophical therapy for me on a few points, and also I think we demonstrated that certain rival intuitions on the topic of free will can't quite be resolved through argument. I think I have come to that conclusion after this conversation. Perhaps there's more to say on that topic, but it just seems to me that if you experience yourself in a certain way, certain points just can't land. Whereas if you have a different experience, moment to moment, certain points are not only obvious, you can't see how experience can be seen any other way. Anyway, you can make of our exchange what you will. It was a lot of fun. And now I bring you Tim Maudlin. I am here with Tim Maudlin. Tim, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, um, I'm uh, thank you for doing this. I I am uh, very eager to talk to you about uh, the the interesting philosophical questions thrown up by our understanding of physics. But um, in particular, I have something that I'm curious about that I will drop on you at some point as we uh, take the tour here. You being a philosopher who knows much more about the Current implication of physics than I do, but before we jump in, how would you describe your intellectual background and, and the kinds of questions you focused on as a philosopher?
1: Well, I, I when I was an undergraduate, I kept bouncing around between different things, and I ended up getting a degree that was a joint degree in philosophy and physics, and then my PhD was in history and philosophy of science. And in general, philosophy and physics tend to go together pretty naturally. Probably most philosophers of science who have expertise in a science have it in physics. And I think that's because the basic philosophical impulse is always to get to the bottom of things somehow. And, and there's a certain sense, it's not the only sense, but there's a certain sense in which physics lies at the bottom of the empirical sciences. I don't want to say that, sometimes physicists say that in a very denigrating way, I don't want to do that at all. But there mm. is a sense in which as you push down, you kind of push down from biology to, to chemistry to physics. So I think that basic search after foundations explains both of, the bio, both of those interests.
0: Maybe we can press into that question you just referenced, which is this the, kind of the concept of reductionism and the occasionally overweening claims that, that physicists are apt to make about. How everything reduces to physics, and this connects to the the concept of emergence, and you know emergent phenomenon emergent properties. Uh, you know the the mind is generally thought of in science as an emergent phenomenon born of you know information processing in biological brains such as our own, uh, as to whether or not that's going to happen in the computers we're we're building, and their software remains to be seen. but um, uh, certainly, we know intelligence is an emergent phenomenon of information processing. I guess we're, we're, the jury's still out on consciousness and you know, there being a qualitative character to mind. But um, how do you think about reductionism and emergence, in particular, with respect to causal powers? For instance, a, you know, it's a, if we say that something is a higher-level phenomenon, is a, you know an emergent phenomenon. If it has causal powers, I mean, so, for instance, you know, we're we're using our minds, we're using language, we're perceiving the world at this moment, this is all considered to be emergent, you know, on the basis of, to to supervene on the basis of, um, you know, neurophysiology and its micro events. But if it has causal powers, if, you know, my understanding of English grammar, say, or my intention To use a certain word in this sentence has causal powers, doesn't it? Only have causal powers at the level of its micro constituents, which is to say, at the level, you know, at bottom, at the level of physics. Um, Is doesn't the reduction actually run through, even if we can't conceive of, much less explain, higher level phenomenon in terms of their micro constituents, which is to say, we're never going to actually be able to think about uh, things like conversations or stock markets or cocktail parties or anything else in terms of subatomic particles and, and fields of, you know, electromagnetism. But aren't the causal powers of those high- higher-level phenomenon nevertheless reducible to their micro-constituents?
1: Okay. So, um, there are a lot of words you use that, um, are multiply ambiguous. Mm. And so it's very easy to get lost in this thicket. Uh, among those are emergence, supervenience, explanation is going to be a big one here, right. and causation. And part of the problem is that even in the philosophical literature and, and, and in the physical literature, people can mean literally diametrically opposed things by emergence. So there was a time when some of the so called British emergentists the hallmark of emergence was a phenomenon that could not be explained on the basis of microphysics couldn't be accounted for and was fundamentally novel and only emerged at some time or in some systems or something like that but my view is is that the the supervenience claim as far as we know is true for what we call the ontology. That is, there's a certain sense in which my computer, just to take the example I'm about to give you, my computer is nothing but a collection of atoms put together in a certain configuration. And uh, everything it does, we think in principle, could be accounted for by just studying how atoms interact and how electrons interact and then how this whole very complicated gadget is put together. But let me just give you an example I use a lot. So suppose I've got my computer, it's on the table, and there's a little display of spinning rainbow colors going on, coming off the screen, photons coming off the screen. And uh, I call in a physicist, kind of a super physicist, and I say, can you make a prediction about about this display, what's going to happen? And you imagine the physicist could kind of scan the thing all the way down. To its microstructure and do some calculations and say, well, that little spinny thing is going to go on for the next four years and five hours and 47 seconds, and then the screen is going to go blank. And I say, okay, thank you very much. (laughs) And and then I call in a a computer scientist and I say, you know, what's the deal with the screen? And the computer science doesn't even look at the computer looks at a bunch of papers that are sitting next to the computer that uh, is the program I've just programmed the machine, and says, look, you got a loop here, right? Step 10 says go to step 12, and step 12 says go to step 10. That little thing's going to spin forever (laughs) because you're in a computational loop. Now, in terms of the actual prediction, I take it the physicist will be right because in 10 years and so on, the computer screen is just going to burn out. And that's not the business of the computer scientist to predict. I mean, the computer scientist is dealing with the system using a different set of analytical categories. But I would claim that the computer scientist has actually given me much better information or understanding than the physicist does, mm-hmm. right? If the physicist has just ground out a very long calculation on the basis of its physical structure, it may give me good predictions, but it sort of gives me no real insight of the kind i wanted so to that extent these other categories that we use to understand the world including biological categories computational categories economic ones as you mentioned i mean the basics of economics presumably would not change if you changed fundamental physics as long as there were people or creatures that wanted to exchange goods hmm. and that had More or less the same psychology that humans have, that they're greedy uh, and they're trying to make money, then all sorts of economic explanations for why things happen would be unchanged by even radical changes of physics at the lower level. So the, the idea that all explanation or all scientific understanding reduces to physics, I think that's just plainly wrong. And in fact,
0: Mm. Disciplines
1: other than physics are much broader because they would continue to have explanatory power even if the physics were quite different. But nonetheless, my computer really is nothing more than a bunch of atoms put together obeying the laws of physics, right? Mm. There's this, the, in terms of what it is made of or what it really is, that's what it is, and there's a sense in which the physical structure accounts for everything else that it does.
0: I think what I hear you alluding to is what often goes by the name of functionalism in the philosophy of mind, and I guess we could take it more generally than that, which is and another way to come at this is to distinguish the software and hardware layer of your computer, uh, or of, you know, many other things like minds. And we could acknowledge that any physical instantiation, of a certain function that, you know let's say a mind or a you know a stock market or anything else that physical instantiation does in fact reduce to physics but it has a logical structure that can be implemented in multiple instantiations even as you say in, in conditions where the, the laws of physics are different in important ways uh, and certainly even within our world where you know the, the laws of physics are the same We we know we can implement let's say in you know a calculator on highly you know non-analogous physical substrates, and we can do arithmetic with the wetware in our heads, and we can do arithmetic in silico with a with on a computer. And the same logic can be implemented very differently. But in each instantiation, what happens next, and the you know the the causal properties of you know of, of each sequence of events is a matter of what the physics is doing, but it can't be understood at that level. You can't look at a collection of atoms in a computer and a collection of atoms in our heads and extract the rules of arithmetic from those two different systems, even if each is implementing the rules of arithmetic. Does that get at what you're saying? Yeah,
1: something like that. Or again, to go back to your own example of the stock market, You know, you've got a broker sitting there, and he's either going to press the sell button or not. And again, theoretically, a complete physical specification of his brain should allow you to predict uh, where his finger is going to go. But for all that, you might say, that gives me no insight of the kind I wanted, right? I wanted to know what motivated him, right? What was he thinking? What was he trying to achieve? Oh, he's greedy, right? He thought that the price was going to go down he thought he should buy it now or he'll lose money. All of that can be perfectly true, right? He can only do that because he has a brain (laughs) And, and he can only, you know, he only has a brain. His brain is made of atoms and it has a physical structure. But there's just all sorts of different levels of conceptual structure that one can bring to a given situation. And those different levels provide different Sorts of insight into what's going on, and in many cases, the physical level, even though it's not there, uh, even though it's there, isn't the right one to give you the kind of understanding that you want to get. I mean, let's take another simple example: pianos. Mm. (laughs) There are no microscopic pianos. There kind of can't be atomic level pianos because pianos are just complicated instruments that need lots of parts put together in certain ways. In that sense, pianos only quote emerge at a higher level. Mm. But are they predictable? Well, yeah, in a sense. I mean, if you tell me how all the microstructure is put together, I can predict that, that when you hit the key, the hammer will hit the, hit the string and it'll vibrate. None of that is a mystery physically. So, and that's because nothing new has emerged really ontologically. I mean, there's a certain sense in which a piano is just a bunch of atoms that have been connected together in a very particular sort of way. So what
0: would you put, what would you class as an emergent phenomenon that is perplexing and, you know, otherwise unforeseeable and not understandable at the level of its micro constituents?
1: Yeah, I I think the only example I know of, which is the hardest problem in the world, is consciousness, right? Is subjective feelings, pain, you know, to take an obvious Mm. example. There's nothing in physics there's nothing in the conceptual repertoire of physics which would allow you to predict not just from small to large but no matter how big it is that any physical behavior would have associated with it a feel or a subjective state that's why you know it's come to be called the hard problem of consciousness mm. i on the other hand c- contrast that you could predict all kinds of behavior i mean just as i can predict the behavior of my computer we think if I knew enough about the brain, I might be able to predict the words that are going to come out of my mouth and your mouth and the vibrations of the air and so on. But that any of that should be associated with a subjective feel. Mm-hmm. That, I think, we have no grip on whatsoever. And I, it's not just that we don't have a grip. I don't even know what a grip on it would look like.
0: Yeah. Well, you and I are. Uh in agreement there. And, you know, the hard problem of consciousness is something that's quite central to my interest, but I'm going to leave it to the side because I I have so much else I want to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. But just to revisit this this issue of emergence for a second. So come back to a property or a function like arithmetic, right? The fact that it's substrate independent, the fact that we could, you know, that a certain concatenation of events can constitute arithmetic in our brains, but it can also do that in a computer made of atoms that don't at all resemble what's in our brains. Uh, and presumably, you know, there we, we could do this in all kinds of systems that one would, you know, that currently wouldn't imagine could be a proper computer. It could, could be made a, a proper computer in some sense and implement arithmetic. So therefore, Arithmetic itself can't really be reducible to any one of those things or any string of those things? Or, or is there something about that that I'm confusing well, ontologically? Okay,
1: so here, here's now you've brought up and uh, opened yet another independent can of worms, which is the status of mathematics, mathematical entities. So this is not like stock trading and pianos. Um, we all agree. That there can't be stock markets without some physics, or pianos without some physics. They're fundamentally physical things in that sense.
0: Although uh, I, I guess I would I would hesitate with the the stock market in that you know if stock markets are also substrate independent and, and open to a, a a functionalist definition, then doesn't that play the same kind of havoc with with uh,
1: reduction? No, no, not really, because um, if you give a functionalist definition of, of the sort you're thinking of Still, uh, that's in a way substrate independent. I mean, take the definition of a Turing machine, okay? Mm. It, it's given a kind of very abstract. It's got a certain number of internal states and their inputs and their memories and then their rules for how things evolve. Nonetheless, in order to have such a thing, you need some, something physical, <laughs> right? You need something. Yeah. It may be that many different substrates can realize it, But you need a physical substrate. The question of the relation of mathematics or arithmetic to physics seems to be quite different. What we, the normal thought, is that arithmetic is just completely independent of any physics, that even if there were nothing physical, it would still be the case that 1 plus 1 equals 2. It would still be the case that there are an infinite number of integers. Even if the physical world is finite and there aren't an infinite number of anything physical, still there are an infinite number of integers. Why? Because, well, you can't stop, right? Every time, <laughs> every time you mm-hmm. get to an integer, there's one, a different one that's one bigger. So, I mean, my view about that is what's called Platonism. That is that the mathematical realm is independent of the physical realm entirely in a way that stock markets aren't.
0: Mm. Well, perhaps we'll touch on that again because I, you know, central to my concern today is to talk about The existence of things that don't exist concretely. Uh, And obviously, mathematical objects like numbers are part of that picture, although different from what I want to focus on. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, let's talk about time and why that is such a um, difficult notion scientifically. I mean, we, we have this common sense experience of time, which includes things like duration and change, And sequence, right? It's bound up with our capacity to remember what's happening. And it's also bound up with our sense of that we understand something about causation because, you know, causes precede their effects. Mm -hmm. You know, if my thumb hurts now, it's because I hit it with a hammer yesterday. It's not because I'm going to hit it with a hammer tomorrow. And so that implies a certain structure, which we we take into account in, in virtually in every moment of our living. How has physics put pressure on our common sense notion of time?
1: All right. So now, I'm, uh, again, I should just warn you that what I'm going to say, you'll hear a lot of people object to, but nonetheless, mm. I'm going to say it because I think it's obviously true. I don't think physics has put any pressure on the idea that time is fundamentally directed, that some things come before other things, that causes come before their effects. There's a a a very specific account of the structure of time, or we might call the temporal structure of the world that was given by Newton, that's kind of a very commonsensical one, which involves the notion of simultaneity, of thinking that uh, if I snap my fingers here, okay, at that very moment that's marked by that finger snap, That moment, as Newton says, exists throughout the heavens, right? The very Mm -hmm. same moment exists in London and on the moon and, you know, at the farthest stars. Newton said something like that. And then you can think of time as the succession of these global instants, which is going forward, right? It has a direction in a way that space doesn't have a direction. And there's duration. You can measure, you know, there's a fact about how much time has passed, and there's certainly a fact about what happens before what. When we get to the theory of relativity, the special and general theories of relativity, they deny that there's this global simultaneity. They deny that if I snap my fingers here, there's any fact at all about exactly what was going on on Alpha Centauri at that moment, because Mm -hmm. there's nothing that counts as being at that very same moment on Alpha Centauri. So it's 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 a shock, in a way, to the everyday conception. On the other hand, the everyday conception not only believes that there's this kind of global instant, but that we're immediately aware of it. I mean, all of us are shocked the first time we're told when you look up at the sky, uh, you know, if you, see a, if, you, if you were to see a supernova, uh, your normal thought is, gosh, that star just exploded. And then someone says, no, 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 it, it exploded millions and millions of years ago, and the light has been traveling to us ever since what you're seeing isn't what's going on right now. And that's true even, even for Newton, right? For anybody. So you, you have this tendency to very naively think that you're being presented right now with the world around you as it is right now. Mm. But any kind of just a little bit of thought about how the information got to you, and you realize, no, there must have been a time delay. It took some time, just as it would take time for a letter to get to you, right? When you read a letter, you don't think, gosh, this is going on right now. You think, this happened a few days ago, what's being reported. Yeah, I would just add
0: that the the same, you can say as much neurologically. I mean, what's happening when you touch something with the tip of your finger and you see your finger do that with your eye, you know, the transit time of, through the visual system and through the sensory motor system is different. And there's got to be some time of integration at the level of Cortex that that's creating this unity of effect, or you know, the so-called right. uh, solving the binding problem. Right. So the the present moment is a confection, somewhat born of of working memory and you know some period of integration that is not just truly punctate in the
1: now conscious. A- absolutely. I mean, there's no question that time perception, again, the subjective feel of time, is a very complicated neurological construct. And, and there could be uh, people, um, you know, there are sort of temporal illusions you can make and trick people mm-hmm. about events that are pretty close to each other in time and get them to think that the time order is different than it was. And we kind of understand how that works. That kind of complicated neural investigation is not where I spend my time. And I don't know, I know a bit about it, but not a lot. On the other hand, one does want to, you know, I think say the Perception of time is a bit different thing than time itself. I mean, we all think that after the Big Bang, there was nobody around perceiving anything, but stuff happened and it happened in a certain order. And, you know, it took a certain amount of time for for stars to form and for galaxies to form and so on. So, time itself, physical time itself, is independent of our perception of it. And our perception may be very, very complicated in a way that time itself isn't.
0: Okay. So, I just want to revisit this claim that the Notion of a present moment, the notion of now, is specious at the the widest scale, right? So mm-hmm. if you, to say that you know you snap your fingers now, you know that now doesn't hold for anything outside your reference frame. So when you're talking about now in another galaxy, you really can't you know utter that sentence coherently, right? Because and and I guess j- just to spell this out a little more. The reason why is because, based on relativity, you, know, if you if you snap your fingers, and then I snap my fingers a second later, you know, so your snap preceded mine by a second in our reference frame, well, you can, based on, on relativity, you can imagine uh, someone far enough away, moving fast enough, say, in, in relation to us, where the sequence is truly reversed. It's perceived that I snapped before you snapped.
1: Well, yeah, I mean no no, I mean it, for you and me if so, <laughs> let me let me try and I'll try and get people to fire up their imaginations a, a bit which would help me try to explain this. Newton's picture, which is kind of the everyday picture, is again that time comes in these global instants. You can imagine the snap a snapshot of the entire universe now, another snapshot a second later, another snapshot a second later, and you sort of stack up all those snapshots the way you would frames on a film, and that gives you the entire history of the universe, okay? And that idea, the technical name for it is that there's a foliation of space-time. So you imagine space-time as being four-dimensional, as having kind of three spatial dimensions and one time dimension. And then you imagine slicing it like a baloney into all of these layers that just one lies on top of the other, right? So that was Newton's picture nothing to do with anybody's reference frame or anything. This is just objectively the structure of time. Mm. What happens when you go to relativity and you just have to keep stuff about reference frames out of it. It has nothing to do with reference frames or anything like that. It just doesn't have that foliated structure. It has a very different one called a light cone structure. So for every event, there's a past and future light cone, and that's perfectly objective. That's just as objective as anything Newton had. It's just not a slicing. And I'm sure people interested in this have at least seen pictures of, of light cones somewhere. But you can kind of imagine a double cone with the snapping of your fingers right at the apex with a cone going downward and a cone going upward that are called the past and future light cones. Now those, according to relativity, are as objective as anything. They have nothing to do with anybody's reference frame or anything. And All of the things in my future light cone are objectively later than that finger snap. Everything in its past light cone is objectively earlier than it. And everything outside of those two, the whole region that's outside the cone, these are events that are called at space-like separation, those have no definite temporal order with respect to the finger snap. Now, if you and I tried to snap our fingers at space-like separation, we couldn't do it because we're too close and we would have Mm. to snap (laughs) with such precision that we could never, ever do it. So if you kind of imagine, and and again, I'm sorry to have people do this in their heads, but if you have this picture of this double cone and then you keep making the cone flatter and flatter, kind of flatten it out, you'll see that it more and more carefully approximates a kind of plane. And the those thin regions outside the cone, those at space-like separation, you sort of never, never run across them in everyday life. But the further away you get, the bigger that region gets. And so if you're, if you're light years away, then that region can get quite large.
0: Okay. So there's this, okay, I mean, you, you seem to be endorsing more of a common sense notion of time than certain physicists might. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you alluded to that in... Uh... Offering a, a footnote before you, you began, I guess there's the two views here can be loosely described as you know presentism versus eternalism in some sense, because the eternalism piece I've often thought of by reference to the phrase, uh, a block universe, which I, I don't know the, do you know the origin of that phrase?
1: I, I, I don't know who first started using it. I do know that that is, again, a phrase that is objectively does us a disservice. Mm. And, and, and I'll just say a word that I can say with certainty about it, which is that uh, Hugh Price, who wrote a book trying to argue against a fundamental direction of time, and this is something I believe that time has a direction. Right, time goes forward. We're all getting older, right? I mean, physics didn't tell us that isn't true. Um, you know, it would be a really amazing discovery. Yeah, I'm for still, physics I'm to still say waiting. We're not actually getting older, right? Um, I'm waiting we, for the
0: discovery that tells us yeah. that isn't true.
1: <laughs> right. So I think there's nothing to that. Now, what what Hugh does in his book is he def- he gives us explicitly. There's a paragraph where he defines what he means by a block universe, and the problem is it has two pieces to it. One piece is to say that the past, present, and future are all equally real, and I believe that. I think they're just facts about what happened in the past, facts about what's going on now, facts about what are going to happen in the future. I, I, I think the you know past people are just as real as you know past pains and sufferings were just as real as the ones we endure, and the, the ones in the future will be just as real. We're um, just
0: as real, or are just as real, because are well, just as real. They gives will us be a just block. in
1: the sense that they're to our future, right? I mean, they haven't happened yet. But they will happen in some, you know, K sera, sera, things will happen in in some very particular way. And then he adds a second clause, which is that, and furthermore, there's no fundamental direction of time. And I kind of endorse the first one and completely reject the second one. So then you say, do I believe in a block universe? Well, I'm not a presentist. I mean, some presentists hold to me the very peculiar view that all of reality is confined to what presently exists. Mm-hmm. And then, if you say the sort of natural thing to say, which is that well, presently there are no living dinosaurs, you say, yeah, but still, dinosaurs are not fictional, right? They're not fictional in the way that you know Sherlock Holmes is fictional. They're really you know, <laughs> dinosaurs are real in 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 a certain sense of real. Of course, mm. they existed earlier than we do. They're in our past light cone,
0: but they're not actual. This actually brings me directly to the the topic I, I do want to raise Good. with you. So, um, maybe i well, will just. I'll uh, start the slide into that, but let let me just prop up the two views we have begun to talk about here: this, you know, presentism versus eternalism. I mean, I think that presentism does, to some degree, I don't know all of its implications in science at the moment, but my understanding of it does capture what I consider a common sense notion of time, which is that the past no longer exists. You know, whatever happened happened, and its effects may be evident in the present. You know, so we, we can see the, the ruins of the Colosseum in Rome, mm-hmm. uh, or you can see the dirty dishes you left from lunch, but eternalism suggests, and, and that's the, what's also going by the name of the block universe, suggests that in some very real sense, the past time in which the Colosseum was full of living Romans who were shrieking for the blood of gladiators is still real right and and as is your past self still devouring lunch, right like the, like it's not th- those moments have been experientially left behind by you in some sense. I mean, you never were there in ancient Rome, and you are you are no longer having lunch but or the you with, 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 with which you're currently identified as this sort of keyhole view of of the cosmos through your you know your conscious mind in this moment, but on this view of of a block universe where you've fully spatialized time and given it no real preferential direction, the past is still, in some sense, actual, even though you can't actualize it. And, you know, worse still, for common sense, the future is also out there. And I mean, although there is a a version of the block universe, I think, that's called the growing block universe, where the future isn't yet real. But let's leave that aside for a second. I mean, it's almost like you know, the reality is a, is a novel, and you're on page 63 now, and yet page one and page 180 exist just as much as the page you're on. And, you know, that, that's the intuition confounding sense in which time gets fully spatialized in a block. And, and so it sounds like you're not signing up for that picture. Well,
1: no, I, and again, it's, um, I mean, I just have to, to, to kind of signpost some words you used. You mm. used the word still, right. and still was doing a lot of work there. You know, is, is the gladiatorial battle battles in the Roman Colosseum, I mean, you imagine a kid going to a museum and they see a picture of these gladiators, and they say, is that real? And there's obviously a sense in which you would correctly, if, if you've just been seeing pictures of unicorns and the Loch Ness Monster, you say, oh no, that's real. Mm. <laughs> you know? It really happened. Now, of course, it happened in the past. If he says, is it still real, uh, then you might say, oh, by still you mean, is it going on right now? No, 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 it's not going on right now. It, it went on in the past, really did go on in the past. And so if you have this picture with these, you know, if you can have this picture in this, uh, of this four-dimensional structure with these light cones kind of in your mind, and you say, right now I'm at the cone point of one of these cones, all of that is real. The whole thing is real. The stuff in my past light cone, I correctly say, happened a while ago and isn't going on now. The stuff in the future will happen and isn't going on now. The idea of what's going on now gets kind of a bit messed up in relativity because unlike there being just a single thing, you have this whole outside region that's actually quite large and doesn't correspond to your naive sense of the present. Um, what really gets lost is the naive sense of the present, quite honestly, is stretching out. So, But I think the, the other thing you said was, well, if I do all this and I completely spatialize time and get rid of a direction, but that's what I don't want to do. I don't think time is – that. that's what many people believe happens when you, quote, spatialize time. You get rid of a directionality to it. And I think there's nothing in physics and never has been anything in physics that suggests that time doesn't have a direction. And certainly physicists always treat it as having a direction always. Often, it, it's so obvious because we know the way time normally goes. When I put in a time coordinate, the direction toward the future is supposed to be where the numbers get bigger, except when I'm sending off rockets. Then I count down, right? Then in the direction toward the future, I go 10, 9, 8. But at all other times, <laughs> you mm-hmm. kind of, if you just give me a time coordinate and don't tell me anything else, the convention is that as the time coordinate gets larger, that's the forward direction of time. So it's so obvious and so easy and there's so little to to debate about it that you can kind of fly under the radar, but it's there.
0: Well except if someone tells me there's no
1: direction of time, I just I literally have no idea how to understand the world I'm living in.
0: But what about all the talk in physics around the math actually having no implication of directionality, that the, the equations are reversible and and only and therefore, entropy is the, is sort of comes to the rescue of, of intuition here. I mean, how, yeah,
1: well, th- I, there, again, uh, two things just happen. The first thing is people say, look, there's no directionality in the equations. Then you say, well, actually, it turns out there is because the CPT theorem and C and P are vital. And there's a technical sense in which in quantum field theory, which is the best theory we have, there is a directionality of time. And nobody disputes that Nobel Prizes were given for the discovery. Of parity violation, Hmm. and so there's no physical dispute that that there's a symmetry that's called CPT, where the T is time symmetry, and there's a general argument that any good theory should should respect that symmetry, but the CP part violates it, and so the only way to get the whole thing to work is to have T be violated too. You there can't be a time symmetry. So they say, look in the equations of physics, you don't see this, and you say, well, actually, in the equations of physics as we have it, you do see it. And then they say, oh, well, let's forget about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a very strange situation. And then they bring in stuff about entropy. Now, the thing about entropy is in everyday life, of course, there are many, many time asymmetries. Typically, although not always, if I show you two photographs taken a few years apart of somebody, you can put them in time order and figure which is a picture of them younger and which is a picture of them older. You might get it wrong, you know, if they had a lot of of cosmetic surgery. You could mess that up. <laughs> but you know, there, there are all kinds of pretty reliable temporal regularities, and they demand an explanation, and the explanation for them is often goes through entropy. That's true. But what, you, what are you trying to explain? You're trying to explain why, typically, this happens before that. And so you're already assuming a time order mm. and even stating what it is you're trying to explain. You're trying to explain why. Things typically happen in a certain time order and not in the reverse order. And entropy considerations are often important for understanding that. They do help comprehend that. But that doesn't at all suggest that time doesn't exist or time order doesn't exist. You assume it exists just to state the problem.
0: Yeah, well, I will be the first to admit that they should hand a Nobel Prize out to whoever can explain what's happening to my face in the mirror (laughs) because uh, that, that shrieks for explanation. But um, you alluded to the fact that many physicists or certain physicists wouldn't agree with you here. I mean, I, I'm thinking of, though I'm not super familiar with their work, I'm thinking of people like Julian Barbour or um, mm-hmm. Carlo Rovelli. I mean, what, what's, who, who are you thinking of when, you, when you're imagining having to debate someone on this topic?
1: Well, the, the, the people you just... I mean, Julian has an extremely idiosyncratic view. I don't think he, he got interested in trying to get rid of space and time, spatio-temporal structure at a fundamental level altogether mm-hmm. in favor of something called relationalism or relationism. And he pushed that program as hard as anybody has pushed it, but that's not mainstream physics. Right. Carlo's views I, are, are a little bit hard for me to understand, but, but the idea that there's a deep problem that connects entropy to time itself as if, I mean, one might put it this way. Some people seem to think that if entropy isn't going up or down, then then, time, then the direction of time will have disappeared, that, that, that mm-hmm. you couldn't say that anything happened before or after anything else. That's a pretty widespread view and one I think that just doesn't, I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that. I don't think that there's a problem there. The, there is a problem about explaining the manifest time symmetry, asymmetries we see, and that's a good problem. A lot of this has to do with what gets defined in terms of what, and it's a very delicate situation to decide what you think should be the defined object and what should be the defining object. Mm-hmm. So I, I personally think, for example, to give the example I think you would agree, if we're worried about causation, and causation can be a very puzzling subject, I think it's part of the definition of a cause is that when you have a cause and effect pair, the cause precedes the effect, right? So I'm going to assume I have a good notion of time precedence, of time order, of earlier and later, and use that in defining causes. There are people who want to flip that around and say, no, 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 I don't understand what before and after mean, but I have some independent grip of causation, and I'm going to somehow wheel in causation to define time order. Well, and it well, seems to me this is just putting the cart before the horse. I mean, this is putting the thing to be defined in the wrong spot, trying mm-hmm. to define the later thing in terms, you know, the the earlier thing into of the later thing. It just doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Well, I think we do have at least uh, we think we have an independent grasp of the the concept of causation because we can talk about the possibility and in general the the non existence of things like teleology, right? That, that causes could stand as some kind of attractor in the future, you know, pulling events toward them mm-hmm. as opposed to pushing from behind. So the fact that we can have a conversation about that suggests that causation is, is separable from, from the temporal order you just sketched.
1: Right. But I, I guess my feeling is that, that, that part of the great triumph of the scientific revolution was to eliminate that kind of teleology. That, oh, I understand why things are doing what they're doing now in terms of them being pulled by something in the future. Now, of course, often you understand why things are going on the way they are now in the sense that someone is aiming at something in the future, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the builder building the house and uh, you understand what he's doing in terms of having plans in his head and wanting to accomplish something and taking steps to accomplish it. That's a kind of teleology and teleological explanation. But the, the theory of evolution successfully eliminated the kind of teleology you're mentioning yeah. from biology and I think did a good job of it and said, you know, uh, evolution and evolutionary pressures and selection pressures all explain why there's this appearance of design in nature, even though there isn't a designer, <laughs> um, even though it's not aiming at anything. And I I take that to be a great triumph of of science. Uh, If someone says, gosh, the reason that such and such is going on today is that something that's going to happen in a hundred years is pulling it forward. I think that's contrary to physics. It's contrary to biology. It's contrary to chemistry. It's kind of contrary to everything. So I think we've gotten rid of that. I hope we have.
0: Okay. So let's um, land on my... um... Topic of you know where I'm genuinely uncertain, which really is the genesis of my interest in this conversation, and it relates to the concept of possibility uh, as it exists in physics, but also as it exists in, I guess, metaphysics and in philosophy. And I guess my my question is, what if there is only the actual? Is there some scientific reason or logical reason to rule out the possibility? I realize that's circular that possibility itself is just an illusion, right? And that, mm-hmm. cause so, so the current sense of possibility I think we all have is that it itself is kind of mysterious because on some, in some sense it is the assertion that reality includes things that don't exist, you know, that, that, that mm-hmm. there's more than the actual, right? There's the actual, there are the things that actually happen, but then there are the things that haven't happened yet but might happen, Mm -hmm. They're the things that could have happened had we done something differently, but they didn't happen because we didn't do something differently. And and, and all of that space seems to exert an influence on what is actual in a way that is kind of inscrutable. So I guess the—I mean, so it seems that if something comes into being at time T1, say, Mm -hmm. right, and becomes actual at T1— It does seem somehow necessary to say that its possibility was real at time t zero, Mm -hmm. and so the question is: In what does that possibility consist? And And perhaps now I'm realizing that we could start talking about David Lewis's modal realism here, which it might be worth addressing, however, however briefly. But my underlying concern is whether the actual and the possible are in fact identical sets, and that anything that is possible really is in fact actual. And all we're adding to this picture is an idea. We we, could, we live with this persistent idea that other things might have happened or might yet happen. You know, you could have married a different person, you could have worn a different outfit. Mm-hmm. But in reality, there is always only the person you married and the outfit you wore, and the rest is something you're thinking.
1: Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're, what you're saying, let me go back. There's a kind of wonderful discussion of these basic questions by Nelson Goodman in his book, in his set of lectures, Fact, Fiction, and Forecast. And he talks mm-hmm. about everyone has a philosophical conscience. And that conscience is a set of things you think are pretty much OK to believe in. And then there are things that are not obviously OK to believe in. It doesn't mean you immediately rule them out, but you, you would require some work to explain them, right? And he says people of different consciences, for him, among the things that he can't accept without further explanation are unrealized possibles, which is exactly the thing you've been talking about. Mm. Angels, he says. Neutrinos, he says. I, it, uh, it's not that he won't <laughs> accept neutrinos, but he needs some explanation. He doesn't quite understand what they're supposed to be. Uh, well, t- so t- he has, two out of
0: three ain't bad.
1: You know, you know, he has a whole list. And, and he just says, look, this is my conscience. If you have a different conscience, you're going to think, I'll, you know, you might think I'm, I'm allowing too much. You might think I'm allowing too little. And part of what you were saying was, look, what about un- unactualized possibles, right? We all agree that everything actual is possible. That's a fundamental principle. Mm-hmm. And we, we would tend to say, but gee, there are things that could have happened that didn't, but they could have. And this is tied to counterfactual assertion so i'm i'm holding an object i don't let go of it but I, it seems to me to be just true to say if i had let go of it it would have fallen mm-hmm. right that that seems as true as anything and these kinds of evaluations of what would have happened you know if you'd done this what would have happened if you'd done that or as you say when you're when you're thinking about what to do what you do is you consider subjunctive conditionals, if I should, right? If I should marry her, well, then I'd have to move here and blah, blah, blah. And if I should marry this other person, then something different would happen. And you're considering what would be the case as best you can. Now, let's go to the simple case. If I'd let go of it, it would have fallen. I think that's absolutely true. What makes it true? What makes it true is the law of gravity. (laughs) And that's actual. That's okay it's not made true by some ghostly letting go of it and a ghostly thing falling right it's made true because there are certain physical laws and what happens in the world is determined by those laws and if you imagine which we're imagining that i lose my grip on it okay then it has an unbalanced force and it's going to fall and so oh, it would have fallen so now i'm talking about a thing that could have happened but didn't now my, the the point is that the truth conditions for that, what makes it true to say that if I'd let go of it, it would have fallen, is not some ghostly thing. And this was one of the other phrases you used, is that the possibilities are putting pressure on actuality. I don't think possibilities put any pressure on actuality, right? Because possibilities, as it were, don't, they don't exist in, in a certain full-blooded sense. They don't push things around. Well, um, Only in, in actual some sense, things can push things around, right? But in
0: some sense, the, the laws of nature are—it's also inscrutable to say that the laws of nature are pushing things around because all that's really pushing things around are the things that exist, right? And if you're going to say that a law of nature is not reducible to each instantiation of a regularity among things that exist, it's got to be pushing those things around in some sense i mean so you you've just basically defined the possible in terms of underlying laws but there's still a, a check that's kind of difficult to cash in terms of influence there if
1: well this this comes again down to your philosophical conscience and this is in my view is i'm i that there's an official name for it i'm a primitivist about laws of nature mm-hmm. which means i think it's okay to accept things like the law of gravity as as a brute fact facts that are not explainable in terms of anything else, but do the job explaining other things, right? If, if I go into a physics class and they tell me, okay, you know, there, there are atoms and there's this and there's that, but also there's this law, F equals MA. And of course, F equals MA doesn't literally push anything around, but F equals MA determines what counts as one thing pushing another around, right? It's, it's the general principle that governs how things behave, not by pushing them. I mean, pushing is the wrong word there. But until you become very sophisticated, it's a natural thought that among the facts about the world are what the laws are, certainly the laws of physics. Mm. And if you accept those, then you can say, all right, once I've got the laws, now I have math as purely mathematical items, not as real full-blooded concrete things, solutions to the laws, and those correspond to physical possibilities. These are what, according to the laws of physics, could have happened. Only one of those actually does, right? But if you ask me, why do I believe it's correct to say that other things could have happened, I'm going to point you to the laws. And I'm going to say, those are real. <laughs> those are not, you know, they're, as it were, giving you the possibilities. It's not that the possibilities are giving you the laws. It's the other way around. Again, it's the cart and horse thing. It's not that the, the, this independent realm of merely possible things is constituting the laws. Is that the laws are determining what count as possible ways the world could have gone.
0: Well, if that's the case, then how does someone like someone as smart as David Lewis get wrapped around the axle of positing possible worlds that really exist? And that's the only way to understand possibility philosophically.
1: Yeah, I I mean... Well, let me just note the rhetoric. I mean, if you're in philosophy, you very soon have to give up on the how could somebody as smart as X believe something as crazy as this? <laughs> yeah, that, because, that, that, that problem you know, extends beyond philosophy, know, Leibniz believed yeah. a bunch of crazy things and Kant yeah. believed a bunch of crazy things and so on. Yeah. So intelligence isn't really the issue. I mean, Lewis's own argumentation was more or less, look, I have all these things I'm trying to explain. If you just grant me that there's this uncountable infinity of actual concrete worlds where pretty much everything you can imagine happens. If you just grant me that, in terms of that, I'll now be able to define a whole bunch of other things. Now, my own view is, well, why should I grant you that? I mean, just because it would have this utility for you, as a philosopher, that's not any good reason to believe in these things. But, but you seem to and be it's saying it's kind of that... a crazy view, right? I mean, it's kind of completely insane, isn't well, it, to it, believe it's,
0: that... Yeah, it is the least parsimonious <laughs> view on offer, except you know, it comes sneaking back in quantum mechanics, as you know, with many worlds, which will which I'll ask you about in a second. But sure. Before we get there, clearly, you seem to be saying that there is no motivation to reach for something uncanny because there is, in fact, nothing hard to explain. We just, we've just we got the, the, the primitives of, of the laws of nature, which do their work, and that is enough to cover all the conversations we might want to have about counterfactuals, our notions of possibility and probability and chance, the, uh, the notion that it, it, things could have been otherwise, etc. You just, at, at bottom, you're, you're not appealing to some ghostly, possibility Mm -hmm. exerting its influence on the actual, you're actually making a covert appeal to the laws of nature in each one of those. Yeah,
1: except it's not covert in my writings. It's very much in your face. (laughs) Mm. I mean as I say, I'm known as a as as a primitivist about laws of nature, which is exactly the view that, yes, there are laws of nature. Yes, there are facts about what they are. No, they're not reducible to anything else. This is a good place. I mean, every account has to stop somewhere, right? Every account of the world has to reach where your spade is turned, as Wittgenstein said, where you're going to say, well, this stuff seems to me to be a good stopping point. Because Mm. if you don't stop, if you're not satisfied ever, then you're never going to be satisfied, right? So you, you, you have to reach a point where you say, okay, these look like pretty reasonable things to postulate as not admitting of further analysis, but rather the things in terms of which I'm going to analyze everything else but then what and are you saying is to find the right stopping place and i think laws of nature are a very natural kind of non spooky it's you know you, you, if you say it could f equals ma i mean it turns out not to be factual but could it have been factual sure why not why couldn't that have been a fundamental law of nature newton's laws of motion mm. pretty good candidate right
0: but can you really stop there well, what are you saying for instance when you say that the laws of nature might have been different what, what What is the might have been? What, what space does the might have been reach into right. if all might have been are defined by the existing laws of nature?
1: Right. And that's a, that's a really good question. I think that the first steps of it are, again, kind of easy to answer. Just you appeal to some mathematics. So, I mean, let me give you a simple example. So, Newton said, and let's just pretend for a moment Newton had been right about all this stuff. He wasn't, but let's pretend he had been. So, he said, okay, we've got this law of gravity, and that, that's an inverse square law. So, the force of gravity drops off as the square of the distance between objects. And now somebody comes along and says, yeah, but what if it had been a cube law? What if it had dropped off as as the inverse cube or the inverse fourth power? Well, that just becomes kind of a mathematical question at that point. Because the way I've answered the physical questions like, if I let go of this, it would fall, where I use Newton's law, I do a bunch of math to calculate what would happen. And if someone says, well, do the math, but replace the inverse square with an inverse cube, the math is clear. And so I know the rules of the game. There's, you know, again, a kind of Wittgensteinian tag, a language game going on. Mm. And the rules are pretty clear. I know how to use the rules. And given those rules, I can say, oh, this is what the world would have been like had gravity been different. Even though I don't think there's any real physical, it's not physically possible that gravity have been different because what defines physical possibility is what's consistent with the actual laws of physics, not with some made up ones. Right? I mean, I can even answer questions that are not even logically about worlds that Mm. aren't even logically possible. So if you'll just indulge me for a second, it is a theorem. It is provable that in Euclidean geometry, one thing you cannot do is trisect an angle with just a straight edge and compass. All right. You can bisect one, but you can't trisect one. Mm. But if you ask me, gee, what if you could? What could you do if you could trisect an angle with straight edge and compass? Now, I'm asking you a what-if question about a possibility that isn't even logically possible, but I know how to answer it because here's a good question. Well, what could you do if in addition to a straight edge and compass, I gave you an angle trisector, right? I just give you a third instrument that trisects angles. Well, now it's just a matter of analysis. All the other things I could do. Could you square the circle? Maybe. I don't know. Hard question. Then I say, well, anything you could do with a straight edge, a compass, and a trisector, if you could trisect the angle, you could do it with just a straight edge and a compass, right? Because you're granting me that with the straight edge and compass I could trisect the angle. So all of the things I can in a very clean way mathematically prove I could do with those three instruments, I could say well you could do all of those if if you had just those two instruments and if you could trisect the angle. And it's th- that's an easy game to play. I mean, I understand the mm. rules of the game. They're not I understand what would be a proof even of if you could trisect the angle then you could do in addition such and such i know even would even know how to go about proving it but there's nothing very mysterious going on here you just have to see the context in which this what if question is being asked in everyday life you're really only interested in things that are at least physically possible you're not very interested in everyday life about things that are not even physically possible or not logically possible or not mathematically possible but if you want to play the game of what if in many cases, it's not hard to figure out the rules of the game, so you can see what counts as saying, oh yeah, th- that, that would be what would happen if. Mm.
0: Well, it, It's still not clear to me, even if we take your advice here and, and, and perform as a, a, a kind of philosophical housekeeping and just translate possibility into statements about the laws of nature, mm-hmm. it's still not clear to me that it is necessary to believe that at any stage along the way as we proceed through time that anything else could have happened than in fact happened right it's just Mm -hmm. and and so i'm so so i guess my question to you is is there anything in physics that demands that we we believe that right so that for instance does does physics i mean i guess physics becomes impractical if we if the bottom line for us is there's simply what happens, and, and basically everything else is embraced by some kind of philosophical skepticism, um, you know, we, we might not be doing a lot of physics if we, we, we have to talk about what's possible going forward in order to try to steer anything or underst- or predict anything. But if in fact, there I mean, just take the, a perhaps a naive conception of the block universe. If the future exists, just as much as the past, well, then that's precisely the situation we would be in. Everything is set. Everything is perfectly determined. And, you know, the novel has been written and now we're reading it. But the progress of time and, and the reality of possibility is, is both are illusions. There's just the fact of, of the block. My question is, is there anything in physics that rules that out? If we do, like, for instance, does, is there a result in, you know, related to Bell's inequality and non-locality that rules that out? Is there any, anything in quantum mechanics that, that, that suddenly becomes impossible to think about if that were true?
1: Okay. So again, let me, um, let me separate two different issues that I think are floating around here. Hmm. One has to do with just thinking about possibilities merely as possibilities without, say, there being any corresponding actuality. Of course, we have to do that. We do that all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, imagine you get some weird cosmic ray burst from outer space, and a bunch of cosmologists are sitting around saying, huh, gee, maybe that is a, a very rare three black holes merging at the same time, like a kind of triple merger of black holes. Well, what would that look like, right? What, what, what kind of cosmic rays might that happen? And now they're doing a bunch of calculations, and they're doing a bunch of modeling, They don't know that 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 that's actually what went on. They don't even know that it ever goes on. Maybe there's no triple merger of black holes in the entire history of the universe. They don't really care. They don't need to care about about it because they know the laws and they're just trying to figure out what would happen if such a thing occurred. (laughs) And they can ask that and go about their business. The other question that 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 is folded into what you said, which is a very different question, is one of determinism. And determinism Hmm. is the question given the state of the world now, is there only one possible way it could continue into the future allowed Correct. by the laws of physics? Or are there multiple ways it could continue into the future given the laws yeah, of physics? Yeah,
0: l- l- let me add a, um, a footnote there because I, I, my concern is not really to, to stake a claim on determinism. I, I think my concern about possibility being specious also holds even if randomness is an integral part of causation, right? So that if, if at some level determinism makes approximate sense, but if at bottom there's still randomness and whatever happens isn't is in truth not predictable based on even on the, you know, the complete knowledge of the present. And so therefore I'm kind of stepping away from, the, from anchoring this to the mm-hmm. full picture of the block universe because in some sense I don't care about whether the future already exists. What I care about is, is there only in every moment simply what happens and everything else is just a, you know, a matter of us making small mouth noises about what, you know, i.e. playing a language game uh, with respect to what might have happened, could have happened, may yet happen, etc.
1: Well, I'm, yeah, I'm now uh, I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled. As I understand the block universe, which is, says, look, there was one past, it went a certain way. There mm-hmm. will be one future. It will go a certain way, right? K sera, sera. That's not a deep philosophical observation. It's a it's a logical triviality. That doesn't constrain anybody's beliefs about possibility or anything. I mean, even in an entirely indeterministic universe, you can be a block universe person and saying, yeah, but there's there really is only one future. Does it exist mm-hmm. yet? No, it doesn't exist yet. That's why it's the future. Is it determined yet? No, it's not determined yet. Could, you know, the laws of physics allow it to come out different ways. We'll only know what way it actually comes out when we get there. But I could say all that and say, still, I I believe in a block universe. I think that, you know, there's the one real past and the one real future and the one real present, and that that's all there is to the history of the physical universe. So I'm not exactly sure, You, you know, none of this seems to me to undermine talking about possibilities that are never actualized or well in some sense posing, it, it's posing a larger, conditionals if i did this that would happen
0: Well, you you understand what people find so agitating about skepticism with respect to free will right so like you know free will you know people have this you know i, I would argue a, you know, most people are walking around with something like a libertarian sense of free will which is you know not well subscribed among philosophers but still I think, is, is the folk psychological sense that people have that they could have done otherwise, right? They, in, in some real sense. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not just that they did whatever they did, and now they can think about counterfactuals. No, it, it, if, if they could rewind the movie of their life, they could play that scene differently. You know, Even returning the universe to precisely the state it was in, you know, a few minutes ago, including every microstate at the level of, the, of their brain. And and what they don't mean there is that, you know, randomness would come to the rescue and, and the, the dice would roll differently and things would play out differently from there. They, they mean, no, they actually could decide to do something differently. I, we don't have to go down the rabbit hole of free will, per se, because I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about it. And, and you know, the, the short answer is I, I, I think it's an incoherent concept. I don't think free will makes any sense philosophically. And, and the truth is, I don't even think it makes sense subjectively and experientially i think i think if you pay close enough attention to what it's like to be you you'll notice that your experience is completely compatible with a fully determined universe you know or determinism plus randomness however you want to think about it but it but free will doesn't map onto the way thoughts and arise and the way intentions arise and the way decisions get made etc but leaving that aside this is a much bigger picture of you know, from the folk psychological side, confinement to a, a single path. There, there's simply what happens, and your story about what might have happened is always just language hurled against the universe as it, in some sense, already is.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I mean, again, you uh, l- let me at least start with a disclaimer, right? Mm. I am a compatibilist about free will. I absolutely believe there's free will. I think that Locke and Hume nailed this thing down and it's what everybody thinks, and it's perfectly compatible with determinism, The determinism doesn't interfere with free will in any way.
0: All right. As I, for, I think we're going to have to touch free will, but, however briefly.
1: I, um, but, but when you say it's just words, I mean, unactualized possibles are not actual. I mean, they're not actual things. So, I'm not sure what else you would want except to say, but when we talk about them, here are truth conditions for what we say. Here are the actual objective conditions, uh, which makes it true that if I had let go of the rock, it would have fallen, and false that if I had let go of the rock, it would have risen to the ceiling. Is that just throwing words mm. out at the universe? No, I think it's telling me uh, something that's as true as true can be <laughs> about what would have happened under those circumstances. They are not actual circumstances because I didn't let go of the rock. It would be very puzzling to me to, to, to think that all of that talk about, and, and similarly, when I'm debating in, in my mind, I'm making a decision and I'm playing out in my mind as best I can. If I should go to the movies, then blah, blah, blah. And if I should go to the opera, then blah, blah, blah. I think that I could be wrong about some of those claims, right? It could turn out, no, I was just mistaken about what would happen if I did this. The world. It's not just—it's not just verbiage, right? The world could be such that my beliefs about what would have happened are just false. So it's not just words thrown out. You know, there was something very dismissive about that. Mm. <laughs> well, if you think the only way to make it not dismissive is to make is to be a Lewisian modal realist, you know, then there then are real concrete possible worlds. But that's not the only option.
0: Well, it, it's just—it's certainly dismissive if you take the most aggressive view of determinism or block universe on board i mean let, let's just say perhaps there's some physical reason why you think this couldn't be true but let's just say the future exists as much as the present and the past in in, in precisely the same way right so it's mm-hmm. like for, viewed from we we have a partial view of actuality where we're sort of segmenting this object based on our peculiar position and we're for us, the only actual is is in the present, or what we deem the present. But viewed from the the the, the mind of God or the mind of physics, there is just a single object, and therefore our sense of of events and processes and verbs is illusory. Right? There's just a, a single noun on some level, and nothing nothing has really happened. There's just the the single happening of the block. What does that? Due to your sense of this problem, but the, does it mot- like? Wouldn't wouldn't that violate your intuition of what time is and what?
1: So this is, I think the the I, I think there's a conceptual error here that's promoted by calling it a block, hmm. because when you call it a block and what people say, oh, you spatialize time. It's as if there's this four dimensional spatial object, right? And people even say it's static, which is a very strange thing to say because. Look, the point is the block is not in time. Time is in it. Yeah. time is not unreal. Time is passing, time is going on. things are falling. you know, uh, <laughs> People get elected. <laughs> All kinds of stuff happens that are temporal, you know, temporal events that happen in certain order and take a certain amount of time. All of that is part of the so this four-dimensional space-time structure that is well, the except no, no but
0: except not quite because I mean you're sort of vacillating between being in the structure and and considering the structure itself there, because like time can't, like we have the sense that time flows or time passes, but if time is the context in which all change is measured, right, if if time is a a measure of change, if, if it's the ruler, it can't be flowing, right, it's like everything that's flowing is something where we're using we're, it's something by which we're re- registering time, or time is the concept of time is by is the thing we use to register change. But from the, at the level of the block, it can't be flowing or changing or passing.
1: Right. Well, it, again, the the words the the proper word here is passing. We talk about time passing. We don't talk about space passing. We wouldn't know what someone even had in mind if they said, "Gee." Space passes from north to south and not south to north. You just you'd come up with a blank as to what they were trying to tell you. But if it's, if we
0: if we have a four dimensional space time, yeah, then you don't talk about time passing. You talk about movement with respect to any one of those dimensions, right?
1: No, I talk about time passing. Why why can't I talk about time passing?
0: Well, I know. I mean, but you you do at the you do at the level of of which you could say I chose to not drop this coffee cup.
1: No, but that was about counterfactuals. No, let's leave that aside. To say that the space time is four dimensional just means that to locate an event in it, like the snapping of my fingers, Mm -hmm. I have to give you in a coordinate system. I have to give you four numbers, right? A latitude, a longitude, an altitude, and a time. That's all that means. It doesn't really. It doesn't say things don't happen. It doesn't say things are frozen. It doesn't say there's no passage of time. Time, of course, time passes. I mean, I I don't this is what I don't understand. There's no conflict conceptually between saying the totality of physical reality is four-dimensional. It has a certain geometrical, space-timey shape, goes back, let's say it goes back to the Big Bang and maybe goes on forever, maybe goes up to the big crunch. Part of that structure is a temporal structure, and the temporal structure involves time and time passes. It takes certain amounts of time for things to happen. I mean, there's, again, the the word block, because people kind of think, oh, like a stone. Mm -hmm. Now, a stone is a rigid object, and what that means is that as time passes, it doesn't change. Unlike an elastic band, which isn't so rigid, and as time passes, it often does change. But nobody thinks that the four-dimensional space-time is like that. That would be to put the whole thing into time. But as I said, time is in it. Time is an an aspect of space-time. It's an aspect of spatiotemporal structure. And to say that it passes, I think is manifestly true. It's because time passes that it has this fundamental asymmetry. And there's no corresponding spatial asymmetry.
0: Well, I think the the concept of a block is somewhat analogous to the, the concept of, I, mean, I used this analogy already, the concept of a novel or a, or a film that's already been shot, right? So like, the, I guess film is better than a novel here. So, you know, when you, when you screen the film, when you put the film in the projector, or when you, when you, when you press play on the, the video, mm-hmm. the film passes, but it is a single object where every frame of it exists already, right? So it's not, it it doesn't pass. Your experience of it passes, but the final scene exists just as much as the first scene. And the fact that you're on the fourth scene in your viewing of it is immaterial to the reality of of the object we're talking about. And I think certainly some people conceive of the block universe with respect to time in that sense.
1: this is such a bad analogy, because in the case of a film, take a frame where it says the end, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a frame where that's printed on it. When you start the film, that frame, sure, it exists, and it's all wound up at the end of one reel. And at the end of the movie, that very same frame also still exists. Maybe it's a little more beat up now. And now it's somewhere else, right? It's on the, it's on the other reel. And it existed. That single frame persisted all through the showing of the film. Now, nobody thinks that the past persists in that sense in a block universe. I mean, it's because that frame persists through time that it can get beat up, that at one time it can be unscratched and at a later time it can be scratched, right? Mm. It, it is a thing that persists through time. But well, that, th- th- that, that's, yeah. believing in a block universe that's the limit doesn't of the mean analogy. that the past persists through time in that sense.
0: Yeah, I, I think you, you have definitely discovered a, a, a limitation. To that kind of analogy. But there are, this is one of the things that's confounding about time. I mean, to talk about the beginning of time also references time, right? So in what sense can time have a beginning? You know, to roll that back to the Big Bang, much of our language is parasitic on these fundamental concepts, and we, we reference them kind of helplessly as we try to talk about their foundations. One way to come at this is, what's wrong with the common sense notion here that the present is all that is actual. And the difference between reality and fiction is, you know, as you would like it to be. But the past really is gone, is every bit as gone as one intuitively thinks it is. And the future is every bit as unreal as one thinks it is. and. That's uh, the common sense starting point, right? So, what what in physics and what in this picture of a block universe pushes on that?
1: Well, again, I think what happens there is you use the word "actual," but then in the context, you use it given what you said, what you meant was actual now. In the common sense thing, I I send somebody into a room that has a bunch of toys in it, Hmm. and I have a box that says "actual" and a box that says Fictional or non-actual. Um, and and they're, you know, toys of unicorns and toys of dinosaurs and so on. A perfectly natural thing to do is to put the dinosaur in the actual box and the unicorn in the non-actual box, mm. even though there are no dinosaurs right now, right? There, there are no presently existing dinosaurs. Sure. If if you mean presently actual, then sure, I would say dinosaurs are not presently actual, but I would insist they're actual. In a way that unicorns are not. This is just a a kind of, you know, the normal thing in language is it it tends to be a bit ambiguous, and you disambiguate what you mean by the context and the way you use the context. I think you were using "actual" in a way that made clear you meant presently existing. Mm. Of course, if you're if you believe in a block universe, you think you think there are things that are actual that are not presently actual, including past things and including future things. And then well, yeah, there are things we're, that just we're aren't using actual the word at all, real. right yeah. like unicorns. There just aren't any, anywhere.
0: I think we've been using the,
1: the, the word real to capture that. No, you could use the same thing for real. Yeah. Real and actual are interesting words because they, 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 they actually have no content, right? I, as I say, we own a dog. We own a real dog. We own our actual dog. We actually own a real, actual dog. All of those say the same thing. Mm-hmm. The real and actual are just kind of rhetorical gestures. But it, it's, it would be different if I said, we own a large dog. That would just be false, right? When I add to dog large, I then restrict it. But when I add actual or real, I don't restrict it because the only things I can, and this goes back to Parmenides, the only things, I mean, it's part of the great philosophical puzzle. The only things you can clearly think about are existing things because there are no non-existing things right, to be thought about. Um, that, that is kind of the, the start of much of Western philosophy, is to try and work your way out of Parmenides' puzzle mm-hmm. of how we can think and talk meaningfully about non-being. But we have worked it out. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's an interesting topic, right? But it's not one we haven't made progress on.
0: Well, so in what sense, or what sense can you make of the phrase that time is an illusion?
1: To me, I I don't understand. I mean, I can make sense of it in the same way if someone were to say, I don't know, um, the World Trade Center is made out of jello. I mean, I understand what they're saying. I can't imagine why anybody would believe it. Um, mm. <laughs> I don't see how time could be an illusion. I, I mean, I know illusions are things that appear in a certain way, but aren't really that way. So am I supposed to think that it seems like time is passing, but it there really is no time, nothing ever changed. Or I don't know, people say motion or change is an illusion. That makes even an illusion of change is a change, right? We only even have the illusion of change when something's changing in our brains, right? When I look at an op art thing and I say, well, the painting really isn't moving, but it sure looks like it. The reason it looks like it is that stuff in my brain is changing, right? As I process it. So I, I literally don't have a clear notion of what someone would be trying to seriously convey to me by saying time is an illusion or change is an illusion.
0: Do you feel the same way about free will? If I, well, When, I, when will- I say free will is an illusion,
1: does it a hit the I I, the I mean, again, I, I, I have a better sense there that some people believe that free will would require the existence of something which seems hard to believe in.
2: Mm.
1: For example, you might think someone might believe that to have free will, you have to have an immaterial soul. I I could imagine someone thinking that, and then not believing in, in immaterial souls, they announce free will is an illusion, right? Because given the way they're understanding free will and the way they think the world is, they think there can't be any free will. I understand everything they're saying. I just disagree that free will requires an immaterial soul right? Mm. If I thought it required an immaterial soul, I wouldn't believe in it either. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. I think I, I, the proper I don't think, analysis doesn't require that, so.
0: I don't think an immaterial soul gets you any closer to what people mean by free will, but um, yeah, I think, so let, let's touch free will, but I, I want to hit a final topic in physics first, because it's just another one of these crazy ideas which many people believe in. I'm going to guess you don't, but it's Clearly, got strong motivation in quantum mechanics to mm-hmm. assert that this is true, and it's strangely close to David Lewis's picture of modal realism. Although I got to think those um, the concepts, uh, certainly the motivations for the concepts are, are different, and yes. I don't know how they interact. Perhaps you have a, a clear sense of how they how they might interact. But th- this is the notion of many worlds in quantum mechanics. You know, generally the picture is well, may- maybe. Maybe let's spend a, a minute on what ha- the, kind of the intellectual history here. Why quantum mechanics started in a place where everything seemed so inscrutable, and consciousness was given this incredible causal power of determining everything. And, and this, so this is the, the, the Copenhagen inter- interpretation of quantum mechanics, and uh, Neil Bohr's preeminency at that moment kind of rammed it through for a lot of people, and then it sort of unraveled. And I don't, I don't know what percentage of Current physicists would sign up for Copenhagen at the moment, but I, I got to think it's, it's not all that high. But there, there are many people who sign up for many worlds. And, um, and it, that, you know, on its face, it seems like the least parsimonious thesis, you know, ever given. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. basically is everything that can happen happens a, something like an infinite number of times, right? To, to, and that's a cartoon version of it. But basically, everything happens that can possibly happen. On some level, it's, it's a, a very Baroque version of what I'm asking about, like maybe, the, maybe there's only the actual, mm-hmm. right? The possibility is there, there's nothing left in potentia. Everything happens.
1: Yeah, well, okay, so let me, okay, let me um,
0: go, go back, go back to go, Copenhagen go back for, a, a bit, for a minute. Just and then,
1: because this, this, this is a very, very intrinsically confusing and contested topic, but let me at least lay down some markers. The thing you found really hard to believe was consciousness's role in quantum mechanics, which I think is very hard to believe, and I quite honestly don't know anybody who does believe it, isn't really Bohr. That's Wigner. That's Eugene Mm -hmm. Wigner, much later, proposed that consciousness take a central role. and. Besides Wigner, I don't know anybody who believes it. And, uh, you know, what we have is lots of people like Einstein saying, what, you know, can a mouse collapse the wave function? I mean, what's going on here?
0: Well, that, that's what gave so, us Schrodinger's cat, right?
1: Well, no, no. What gave us Schrodinger's cat? Schrodinger's cat, not really. That, that's an interesting observation. But maybe we'll get to, I'll okay. get to Schrodinger's cat in a minute. How to understand what Bohr believed is also very contentious. You can't, sum it up. Some people nowadays, physicists who say, I believe in Copenhagen, have never read Bohr. They have no idea the kind of very strange philosophical things he said. What they mean is, I'm just kind of an instrumentalist. I use quantum mechanics to make predictions and I don't care Mm. (laughs) beyond that, right? So that's just a very flat-footed instrumentalist view of, of not taking any particular stance on anything, but just saying, you know, as we we now say, shut up and calculate. I know how to make predictions, and that's all I care about. Why the many worlds? Okay, so when, when you officially try to make a mathematically clean account of what was coming out of Copenhagen, and this was done by John von Neumann in a book called Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics, what von Neumann found he had to do to make sense of what they were saying was to say that this fundamental object in quantum mechanics called the wave function behaves in two completely different ways. Sometimes it evolves in a completely deterministic and linear, that's a mathematical condition, linear way given by Schrodinger's equation. So this was the equation that Schrodinger found and that is used in all of quantum mechanics to this day. But what Von Neumann thought was that to make sense of it, you couldn't say that all it ever does is obey Schrodinger's equation. Sometimes it has to do something else, and this something else was called collapsing or reducing. And When it does that, it doesn't behave linearly. It does something quite different. It's no longer deterministic. That's where the probabilities come in because the idea was systems, two systems in the very same identical quantum state could then diverge because one collapses a certain way and the other collapses a different way. And they're just probabilities and there's no causal account of why one did one and one did the other. So that, many people thought, was kind of a messy and maybe incredible theory. If you try to take it seriously, your first question is, well, when does it do one and when does it do the other? Right? If, it, if, if the wave function sometimes obeys Schrodinger's equation and sometimes it doesn't, what are the conditions under which it does each and the canonical answer to that was oh when you make a measurement or when you make an observation and if you then tie consciousness into observations you get wigner all right so now we've worked our way up to wigner right. although just,
0: just a, a matter of intellectual housekeeping for me i was using the copenhagen interpretation to be synonymous with this claim that it is observation i e consciousness Mm-hmm. That collapses the wave function. But now, are you, are you just differentiating observation and consciousness and, and giving well, me Bohr and Wigner you know, by
1: turns? Bohr, Bohr and Heisenberg and so on very strongly denied that they were making any mention of consciousness. I mean, what Bohr said but was. But they were talking
0: about observation, weren't they?
1: Th- not really. I mean, all they, they, they just they, their distinction was often between microscopic and macroscopic. So they would say, right. look, a, a needle on a meter. It can't be in some weird, strange state. It's got to be classically described. It either is on the right or on the left.
0: But then what, what was the origin of Einstein's gripe that you mean to tell me the moon only exists if somebody's looking at
1: it? Right. Well, that's what, again, they tied the collapses to something like measurements, but they didn't tie the measurements to consciousness. Okay. They more tied it to things like macroscopic objects right. or something okay. like that. But, but all these it, are vague terms. I mean, yeah. Bell, John Bell wrote this wonderful paper called Against quote, Measurement. And he, he lists a bunch of words that he says should not appear in any, found, any formulation of physics that aspires to be foundational. And there are words like macroscopic, microscopic, reversible, irreversible, mm. uh, and measurement, and so on, because he says these are vague. We don't know what they mean, they don't have any sharp meanings. And physics should be formulated in sharp terms. And certainly, he doesn't even mention consciousness. When he talks about information, he says that's vague too. So, anyway, the the standard view was forced into a position of saying the wave function evolves in these two quite different ways. Einstein certainly never liked that. One reason he didn't like it was that these collapses seemed to be non local, seemed to be spooky action at a distance, as he said. He didn't like that. They're also supposed to be indeterministic. He didn't much like that. He didn't mind that so much. Now, If you don't like that, and pretty much nobody likes it, and you want something clean, what are your options? Well, again, John Bell, in a very nice way, the reason you get into this problem and what's illustrated by Schrodinger's cat is that if always the wave function is governed by Schrodinger's equation, and the wave function describes everything, that is, if you give me the wave function of a system, that describes all of its physical properties. Mm then in this Schrodinger cat situation, the cat's going to end up in this strange state that's neither alive nor dead. Now, Schrodinger thought that was idiotic, right? Schro- Schrodinger yeah. wasn't trying to convince people that there were cats in these weird states. He, just, he was trying to convince people that this Copenhagen stuff you
2: know, was, was, was really bad,
1: yeah. and yeah. they needed to go rethink it. And the actual example of the Schrodinger cat is, is, a, is a kind of variation on an example that, again, came from Einstein in some correspondence with Schrodinger in 1935, Einstein was talking about gunpowder, that uh, a a barrel of gunpowder that, as it were, quantum mechanically has a certain chance of exploding over a certain period of time. He says, well, look, it's either going to explode or it isn't. The Schrodinger equation will not give you that. The Schrodinger equation will give you this kind of superposition of exploded and unexploded. Now, what Bell said was, His conclusion was that the wave function as given by Schrodinger's equation is either not everything, or it's not right. Those were his two options. If it's not everything, then you can allow the wave function to do this. But you say, yeah, but that doesn't determine whether the cat's alive or dead, or that doesn't determine whether the gunpowder has exploded or not. All of that information is carried in additional variables that have been very badly called hidden variables. They're not Mm. at all hidden. So this is one way out of the problem, is you say, I'm going to allow only Schrodinger evolution, nice, clean, deterministic, linear, beautiful, mathematical, simple, but I'm going to add extra variables like particle positions or things that go into the physics. And that has been realized in the so-called pilot wave theory Mm. or Bohmian mechanics. Um, So that's saying the wave function is not everything. The other option that Bell gives you is that it's not right. That is, it does sometimes collapse. I mean, the Schrodinger evolution doesn't always obtain. That route has been pursued by people who have tried to make mathematically precise objective reduction or objective collapse theories. The most famous one is by Girardi Rominian Weber. Roger Penrose has had Mm. thoughts along these lines. You can do that. And Bell sort of says, these are your two options. Now, if you don't like either of those two options. And you say, no, 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 no. I only want Schrodinger evolution and I don't want anything besides the wave function. Then you're forced into many worlds. The way you get to many worlds is by trying to hold on to both of those and then just force your way through and see can I make sense of the theory without collapses and without anything besides the wave function. Now, what happens is you get this kind of branching picture. Everybody, you know, it's in all the movies and. So on. It's not really Lewis's view because Lewis's many possible worlds are all spatiotemporally disconnected from each yeah. other. That's what makes them different. And these branches are all spatiotemporally connected to each other. They all grow out of the same trunk, right? right? So they're not separated. And there in the many worlds theory, you really can have that, as it were, one of these branches physically interferes with another branch. You know, how how one branch goes can depend on what other branches there are so these are really causally interacting things in principle so yeah there that and and there really wouldn't be even enough branches there are lots of them but not enough to underwrite all of our talk about possibility and so on so yeah but what,
0: wouldn't it be if many worlds is just true couldn't one summarize it by saying that there is no possibility there's just this endless or nearly endless proliferation of the actual.
1: Well, no, I mean, it, it, it go back to my cosmologists who are trying to figure out what would happen if three black holes merged all at the same time. Mm-hmm. They're doing their calculations, and they do them pretty much the same way, even if they believed in many worlds. But that doesn't mean they have to believe that at any in any branch anywhere, three black holes actually merge. Right? They're not committed to that. They still would have the resources. To talk about what might have happened or what could happen. Even in many worlds, it doesn't have to be the case that in some sense everything that could happen does happen. It's just every, mm-hmm. every possible outcome of a quantum experiment, every, if you have a, an experiment set up, an actual experiment set up, that according to quantum mechanics has different possible outcomes, there'll be a branch in which each of those outcomes occurs. But there. What is
0: determining, in many worlds, what is determining each moment of branching?
1: The, all of this is just, you, you're just solving Schrodinger's equation. There's nothing, mm. the whole mathematics is being carried by this one equation. Now, the branching structure and the people who do this seriously and, you know, really seriously think about it, they all ad, admit or you might even say, tout the fact that, that there's no real fact about when a branch. Of, when branching occurs. It's not as if branching is a sharp physical event that you can say a second ago there were no branches and now there are three. It's a kind of very approximative thing. It's a little bit vague where when a branch occurs or how many branches there are because there's no sharp definition of this. It's, it's not doing,
0: th- isn't it doing the same work as observation was doing under Copenhagen? No.
1: No, because the branching... I mean, also the branching So the branching is tied to a, a, a technical condition called decoherence, mm-hmm. and everybody agrees that the wave function will decohere, but the definition of decoherence itself is, is not precise. It always involves a certain quantity being near zero, but not exactly zero, and mm-hmm. depending on where you set your, your threshold for what counts as near zero, you'll get different accounts of how much decoherence has occurred. So,
0: have, have you ever spent time with someone like David Deutsch who believes this sure. theory?
1: Sure. A, a little bit. I mean, I haven't, I know people who've spent a lot more time with David Deutsch than I have. I've met him and talked to him a bit, certainly read his stuff. And I've talked a lot to the Oxford Everettians, mm-hmm. David Wallace and, and Simon Saunders. I mean, the people in the philosophical community who have been in the forefront of trying to develop and clarify. And Sean Carroll. I mean, I've talked to a lot of Many Worlds people. Sure. Mm.
0: So, what's your? Why haven't they convinced you that this picture is the most plausible?
1: Well, they have all kinds of problems. They have there there are many problems that people have talked a lot about. One is the probability problem. So, you say quantum mechanics just as a calculational tool makes probabilistic predictions, like it says. Well, if you do this experiment, there's a twenty-five percent chance of this outcome. And a 75% chance of that outcome. But according to them, whenever you do the experiment, you get both outcomes. 100% of the time you get mm-hmm. both outcomes. Yeah. And then you say, but then what do these numbers 25 and 75 have to do with anything? How do I even make sense of probabilities? Well, in there's, a just, there's theory, just that it's, many,
0: there's just a three to one split in the- No,
1: it's not branch counting. That's, the people thought, oh, what you're doing is counting branches, but that's not right. Because as it were, the three could go with a single branch that's thicker, if you will, mm. than the other branch. I mean, the, the idea that all you're doing is branch counting is something that all of them reject because everybody agrees it doesn't work, mm. doesn't give you the right numbers. So they have to come up with some other story about how all of this connects up with probability.
0: Mm. Okay. Free will. In what does your compatibilism... Consist. I mean, you, you take Dennett's line essentially that there's that there's a species of free will worth wanting, and that we can just set aside libertarian notions of free will. That that's not. It's that was never on the menu, and we should we shouldn't pretend otherwise. And and there's just a a more sophisticated conversation to be had about the difference between. You know, doing what one what one wants as opposed to being coerced to do what one doesn't want, etc. And that if once we add up all of those differences, we have the, we have the only free will anyone cares about in the first place.
1: Well, I I mean, you could tie it to Dennett. I, I again, I like to go back to Locke and Hume because I think they just kind of settled the thing long before Dennett, and they just sat down and said, "All right, what do we mean?" When we talk about freedom, and what do we mean when we talk about volition and volition is what underwise talk about will. Mm. And you know Locke's point was, first of all, if you think about it, the very phrase "free will" is itself a, a mistake. It's not the will that's either free or not free. It's the person. So if I'm locked in a room, I'm not free to leave. Uh, if the door is unlocked, I am free to leave. And that just has to do with what I'm capable of. And it's kind of straightforward. It's not, nothing terribly, uh, you know, I, I mean, Hume says this kind of freedom everyone has who isn't a prisoner and in chains. Mm-hmm. So the freedom part, or in some cases, you're not free to do things. If you throw me out the window, I'm not free to do anything but fall, right? Because <laughs> it's not within my power to prevent my falling. Then what about the will part? Well, there's volition. Sometimes we do things and they're not volitions. They're not intentional. I sneeze. Right? The doctor hits my knee and, and, and the and I kick, but not because I willed it to happen, not because I made a decision for it to happen or wanted it to happen. That's just an autonomic response. Okay, that's pretty clear. Hmm. Then among so some acts are involuntary, some are voluntary. Among the voluntary ones, some are deliberate, right? That is, I actually thought about it before I did it. I considered various alternatives. Gee, am I gonna go to the to the movies or am I gonna go to the opera? You know, am I going to go to this restaurant or that restaurant? I actually went through a deliberative process. I considered different possibilities. I played them out in my mind. And on the basis of which one seemed preferable to me, that is on the basis of my own desires, I chose the one I thought mm-hmm. you know, I preferred. And if I do that, and then I'm free to do one or the other and I do the one, I mean, what more do you want? right? I mean, maybe mm-hmm. you might say this is Dennett's worth having, but I don't, you know, Locke and Hume just say, but that's, That's just what we call an act of free will, right? If I deliberate about something and consciously choose to do it, and then do it because I'm capable of doing it, what more is at issue here?
0: Well, let's just take the the simplest case. Let's say we had a Laplacian demon who could predict all of your actions in advance Mm -hmm. because we actually live in a fully deterministic universe. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't feel that that erodes the experiential foundation of, of what you're calling free will I mean, if, if you had a readout if i could show you that you know I, I had a a script written in advance that included everything you said in this conversation mm-hmm. wouldn't you feel like okay this is not I, the free will i thought i had i no longer think i so have
1: let, let me give you a non-science fictiony example mm. and and also i i have a million i have a whole petting zoo of pet peeves but Yes, we call it the Laplacian demon, but it was actually Boschkiewicz almost as much earlier. I mean, oh yeah, I LaPas didn't know that. Was almost, uh, okay. almost cribbed. I mean, if you read it, he was plagiarizing from Boschkiewicz. Laplace,
0: the, pl- the plagiarist.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was. I mean, it's very interesting. Anyway, look, let me give you a non-science s- fictiony example. Hmm. Suppose you're at a restaurant and, I, and you're going to be given a choice of desserts. One is a creme brulee and the other is a bowl of broken glass. Hmm. I hereby predict with real certainty which one you're going to choose. I can predict that not because you're not free, but because you are free. <laughs> Quite honestly, if you decided to, to, to eat the broken glass, I would assume somebody was holding a gun to your head and you were not making a free, mm. you know, you were making, certainly being coerced. Why? Because that, that's the, the preference you have. That's the preference anybody would have. The fact that I can predict you're going to do it, of course I can predict you're going to do it. Because those are your preferences, and you're going to act in a way that'll maximize your preferences. Why? Why should my ability to predict that make you any less free? Well, because
0: I think that sort of elides the the force of complete prediction here. So, I mean, we we when we're confronted with a system whose behavior we can fully predict, that is tantamount to saying that there is no freedom in the system. Right? It's completely rigid. Now, however, however complicated it might be. If we know everything it's going to do in advance, it would be delusional of that system for it to think at any point along the way that it could have done otherwise because we know it can't do otherwise.
1: If, if I can correct, I mean, uh, you're, 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 you're saying I'm eliding something, but stick with my case. Mm-hmm. I actually do predict what you're going to do and I'm accurate about it. Does that take away your sense that you made a free decision? The reason you did one of the others, you well, preferred it. I, I, I'm, I'm the wrong case
0: because I, I actually. I, You'd eat the broken glass? No, no, but no, <laughs> no. But when I when I do what I prefer, that does not seem like evidence of free will to me. I mean, it, it seems like evidence of causes and conditions just playing out, right? And and when and where this becomes psychologically interesting and, and I think you know relevant to people, is when they you know all too often have to confront in themselves preferences they wish they didn't have or they wish they didn't have in that to that degree they find it very difficult to change behavior they want to change mm-hmm. there's a kind of a congress of selves in there in, in competition and so they they find that something's getting a vote that they you know they wish they could have blocked in some sense and so people are at, you know at odds with themselves and that, and that makes the li- the limits of of freedom Interesting, but for me, when I look at you know every case of doing anything, of thinking anything, I just see each next thing appearing in consciousness and becoming actionable or not, for reasons that are subjectively totally mysterious, right? So, like for instance, if if you say to me, uh, I mean, take the more relevant case of you know I, I'm I'm looking at a menu and there are two desserts that I actually do want and I have to choose between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is the paradigmatic case of, you know, where I, wherein I exercise my free will. I, I can take as long as I want, say, there's no coercion, no, one, no one's impatiently demanding that I make up my mind. And let's say I spend an hour and a half bouncing back and forth between creme brulee and, and ice cream, mm-hmm. and, I, and I like both, and I might choose one or the other on any given night for reasons that I might be able to defend in retrospect, but in the moment... As I bounce between them, it is eeny meeny miny moe style. It is genuinely inscrutable to me why one preference becomes effective on a Tuesday and another becomes effective on a Wednesday. And yes, I'm I'm gratifying my preferences, right? I'm not I'm not unhappy with the outcome, but there's a mystery at my back, which we may Know something about in the end, it's a neurophysiological mystery at one level. It's a mental mi- mystery at another. If I had to invoke all of the network of causes that explain it, i'm I'm, I'm sure you know it's it's determined you know add, add as much determinism and randomness as you want. You know, we're talking about my genes and we're talking about you know neurotransmitters, and we're talking about you know in you know various inputs to my nervous system that are effective or not for reasons that are contingent. But all of that is happening in the dark with respect to me as a conscious witness of what it's like to be me. And what I'm, all I have available to me as a matter of experience is this final crossing of the finish line intentionally and as a matter of my behavior where I say, oh, you know, I'm going to take the, I'm going to take the creme brulee this time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, the buck stops there. But that is, in my view, totally compatible. With one of these cartoon scenarios where there's an evil genius in the next room controlling my brain over Wi Fi saying, you know what, let's give him the creme brulee tonight. And, you know, he hits a final keystroke. And I subjectively think, you know what, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the creme brulee tonight. Right. Yeah. That's my experience of making yeah, the but decision.
1: I, it's funny. I mean, you know, I, agree, I can agree with everything you said except for one word, which is a, yes, there are these cases where you're, as it were, extremely indecisive, and you don't know what to do, and, and none of the considerations move you very strongly. But the problem was at the beginning you said that's a paradigm case of free. Oh, oh, and oh what, no, every case.
0: What, what, don't, don't make me as decisive as you want. So, so but, the, but mo- the is, more decisive the you the make more de-
1: the, the more decisive you are, the more predictable you are. What Leibniz said, well, I think he was correct. He said, most people say what the, 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 the creature in his ontology that has the most free will of all is God. Why? Because God can do whatever. But Leibniz says, I can predict exactly what God's going to do. God's going to choose the best of all possible worlds. Why? Because that's the, you know, because his, he's a moral being, and so he's going to do the best thing possible. He would never do the worst when the better was available. So th- the question is, does predictability conflict with freedom? And insofar oh, okay. as the, but if the freedom saying... is freedom to do what you desire and somebody knows what you desire, they can predict what you're going to do. It doesn't make you less free. I mean, they said you're freer the more motivated you are.
0: Well, it does make you less free in the sense, so, and this comes back to you know, Einstein's objection to this, which is, you know, I can do what I will, but I can't will what I will, right? Like the buck stops with, with what you want and you didn't create your wants.
1: That's where the buck should stop. Why should I have to will what I will? Of course, if you demand that I will, that I will, and then I will, that I will, that I will, and so on, I'm in an infinite yeah. regress, cool. and you've set up a mugs game. But why should I care? I've got my desires. Somebody wants, to, wants money, and mm-hmm. they consider robbing a bank. What are their desires? Their desires to have money. They think the thing through. They know they don't have to. They consider various alternatives. On the basis of their greed, they decide to rob the bank. That's the case where we really put them in jail. Where they're not at all indecisive, right? Right. I mean, it's not, you know, indecision doesn't somehow make you more culpable when when you do something. I mean, we normally think that being torn and being indecisive before you finally settle on something, if anything, makes you less culpable. What makes you really culpable is being decisive. Why? Because then your action reflects your character. Your action is an indicator of your moral character. And this is what Hume said. This is what we need for a for a system of rewards and punishments. Is that the act itself isn't bad? We punish the person because the bad act is an indication of a bad character. Right. And the 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 clearer that connection is, the more you can predict what someone's going to do.
0: Okay, but so then, then you are rendering people indistinguishable from all these other systems, the behavior of which we can predict. Like let's say you know a grizzly bear. If you take a wild grizzly bear and set it loose in a school. We can be pretty sure what it's going to do, and it's, sure. going to be, it's going to be terrible, but no one tends to say that we find that the bear especially culpable because of its own free will, it killed and ate all those children.
1: Well, I, it seems to me it did it of its own free will. We don't tend to render it culpable because it didn't deliberate. As I said, one thing that makes it worse, this is why it's worse to kill somebody in cold blood than in a rage. a rage. Mm right? In the, in the legal system, we recognize this, that, that you're especially culpable when you deliberate, when you, before you act, mm-hmm. you're aware that there are various alternatives, and you consider them, and then you choose one or the other. Now, the bear, of course, has no sense that what it's doing is wrong anyway. It's not thinking, gosh, I'm breaking the law or I'm right. hurting kids or anything. It doesn't deliberate at all. But sure, it, 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 it's free. I mean, the, no no one the, the, the thing that's absent in the case of the bear is really this extra process and 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 again Locke talks about this too he says humans unlike animals can suspend action right one thing we're capable of that presumably the bear isn't is to tell ourselves sometimes let me sit down and think about this okay mm-hmm. <laughs> let me not just you know pop off and do something let me really sit down and try and consider what my options are and so on and the more deliberate you are, the more culpable you are on what you finally decide.
0: R- well, yeah. I mean, that, I, I grant you that's the, the set of moral intuitions and the, and the norms we have around this. And I agree with it insofar as it, it suggests that, the, at least in a person, that the behavior isn't you know, adventitious and kind of narrowly focused on that case, because I think what we find most Objectionable in when bad people do bad things is the principle of, of deliberation. The fact that they had every opportunity to do otherwise and they and yet they didn't because mm-hmm. they like harming people. Say right. like they, they get pleasure from it. And they're, they're yes. and when you ask them, you know, they're they're voluble about you know all the reasons why they did it. They don't find their behavior inscrutable. They sure. it's precisely what they wanted to do. Uh, mission accomplished. The reason why we find that so worthy of blame is because we've been given a, a tremendous amount of information about the global properties of that person's mind, right? So the, the person who kills the king after deliberating is a regicide in the way that the person who killed the king by accident or, mm-hmm. or you know, while drunk or, you know, otherwise yeah, exactly, yeah. isn't. And therefore, we know a lot more about what that person would intend to do in the future, what he thinks about the queen, right. what he's... And that's why we want to lock him up forever or kill him, whereas the and, other person... And they're more,
1: and they're more predictable. Yeah. I mean, you can pretty well predict what Hannibal Lecter is going to do when he escapes. Yes. But the, the fact that he's predictable doesn't make him any less culpable. It makes him more culpable. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess... So in some ways, you're you're biting the bullet in a way that is... I mean, it, making you, aligning you a fair amount with how I view things, but I think it's not, we're not capturing what most people want out of free will, right? I mean, what, what most people want, is like, so most people, if, if you gave them evidence of perfect predictability, they would suddenly feel like they're in an episode of The Twilight Zone and mm-hmm. nothing is what they thought it
1: was. Right, They, they would feel—I mean, it's an interesting situation. It was a little bit clearer for Locke and Hume, and, and I, I don't want to just speak out of turn about what everyday folk think, because I haven't done the research, and it would be presumptuous of me. Hmm. Of course, at the time that Locke and Hume were writing, the everyday folk really believed that God could foresee everything, right? God had foreknowledge of everything. They, they believed that, right? There was a perfect predictor. God knew from the beginning how everything was going to turn out, and nonetheless, they no, did. None nonetheless, we'll consign free will consign you to hell, right? yeah. <laughs> and they thought that God was perfectly just in consigning, per, you know, a bunch of people to hell um, <laughs> because of the way they acted. So they kind of, at least at that time, found yeah, a it, way to reconcile. Honestly, it didn't make
0: any more sense in, uh, under those conditions.
1: Well, you were just asking what everyday folk think. Yeah. I mean, those everyday folk managed to manage somehow to reconcile God's foreknowledge with still holding people accountable, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to make sure I, I and the listeners understand your view here, even under conditions of perfect determinism and predictability, you feel that what you mean by free will is totally conserved, because mm-hmm. we're, re- really we're just talking about free people able to live out the Consequences of their mm-hmm. desires and intentions, mm-hmm.
1: and yeah, goals. Th- that's why this position is called compatibilism. It just says that that the idea that there's a conflict between physical determinism and free will is an illusion. There's they're they're compatible with each other, right? They're they're really addressed to different topics, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. So this this is what I mean. The, so it's the distance between that kind of sanguine embrace of determinism and what I think most people. Feel is true in each moment, which is this, this libertarian sense in which they're not being perfectly constrained from behind by their genes and their the inputs to their nervous system, uh, and you know cosmic ray bombardment and anything else that might be happening in the dark. Uh, that they, whether they are just in- intelligent machines or ectoplasm riding on top of brains, they are the the true authors of their thoughts and intentions and and their wills. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sense of confinement when they try to, you know, they try to lose weight, but they find that, you know, the one who went on the diet is not no longer in control at the end of dinner when it comes time to order dessert. Mm-hmm. And they, they find themselves helplessly ordering, you know, an extra 500 calories. And so there's tension there, but basically they feel like they're deciding. And, and they find that given this perfectly clear, fine-grained causal picture of you know genes transcribing proteins and, and therefore neurotransmitters in the dark and all the mechanics of what's happening underneath the hood, if that were perfectly determining what they want in each moment and what they can think to do, they feel that, that w- in some sense, th- those are like the, the strings of the puppet that move into the hands of a puppeteer that they can't mm-hmm. take o- ownership over. And you're, you're, you're just saying that you don't care about those strings.
1: Well, it, it's not, you see, strings connect two different things. So there are two comments to make here. The mm. One is, I think, universally true. When people express this kind of thing you're expressing, and then you say, well, would you feel better if the underlying physics was indeterministic? They say no, no. <laughs> yeah. right? That doesn't help. Yeah. As soon as you say that, you say, well, then the determinism apparently wasn't the problem, right? If I get rid of it and it doesn't help then you're focused on the wrong thing. I mean, I think that's universally the case. Nobody who thinks yeah. that making physics indeterministic suddenly gives them the kind of freedom well, so, they want. Some people
0: do, but I think it's a spurious move. Yeah. I,
1: I have not had yeah. that experience, right? And, oh, I'll, and t- the, I'll tell
0: you who does. The people who recoil at determinism, the people for whom it would be a perfect refutation of what they mean by free will if you could reduce them to true clockwork, Mm-hmm. And show them, you know, a printout of everything they were going to say, but, time-stamped in advance of them having said it. They they then reach for indeterminacy, you know, quantum or otherwise, to shake up the clockwork to give them a degree yeah, but of freedom. It, it, it,
1: if someone says, "Oh my God," I it would it would be terrible if I were a clockwork automaton. And you say, and it would be better if you're a stochastic automaton? Yeah, and no, I makes mean, no it's sense. It's the automaton part. Now, yeah. let me make the second comment, which is it goes back to something I said a long time ago. I think part of what happens is there are some people who think that to have free will, they need an, an immaterial soul. Mm. And the more you can explain by physics, anything you can explain by physics can't be their soul. And so if you can get from the beginning to the end of the action without going outside of physics, then they're kind of, I don't know, they've been pushed off the stage. Yeah, but also- I think that's just a mistake. I think, look, I am my brain. So it's a mistake to say my brain made me do it, right? My brain mm. is pulling the strings of me because there's no distance between my brain and me. I am my brain. My brain doing things Mm. is me doing them. So that's where the string falls apart.
0: The soul doesn't help either because no one made their soul. No one can account for the fact that they weren't given the soul of a psychopath.
1: Right. That, that's also true. There, there's that line of argument that it doesn't help, but I think that part of what makes, can make people feel uneasy is having this picture of a soul, of thinking of it as immaterial, and then thinking, gee, but if the matter can explain everything, then I'm not doing any work here. Okay. And there I think the mistake is just thinking that they have any immaterial parts of them or that they are I- even in part an immaterial thing then I think they've just made a they've just made a factual there's just a factual error there
0: all right so so let's just do a, a very brief experiment here because it, this gets to at what I find so um, you know specious about the concept of free will I mean, as as you just pointed out it doesn't the common sense notion doesn't map on to determinism but it also doesn't map onto randomness either and however you combine them I, I don't think it gets any clearer but most people think this is a problem because it we really do have an experience of free will. And, and here's, here's one way in which I think the experience breaks down. So if, if I ask you to think of a film, right? think of any, you've seen presumably hundreds of films, you know the names of more that you, you haven't seen. You know, so just think of, a, think of a film and let me know when you got one, you've decided on one. I got one. All right, so now would you say that the experience of thinking of a film Falls within the purview of your of your free will.
1: Well, it's not really a volitional act. I mean, again, the the paradigm volitional act is that I deliberate about is one where there are various options that I'm trying to choose between them. All right. Well, well, I mean, I can tell you why I chose the. I had to fix on a film, and I can tell you why I chose. Don't don't tell me yet. No. (laughs) Let's let's make this
0: let's make this as an, an example of of free you know cognitive and behavioral freedom. Right. So like deliberate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am I'm, I'm being- seize, un, those, un, seize the
0: reins of, yeah, of your I, I,
1: Nobody from the outside is telling me which one to pick, right? It, right? In that sense, it's perfectly free. And I deliberated about it. I can even tell you the grounds on which I chose it.
0: But it, it, isn't it analogous to you deciding what you want to have for dinner tonight? Like You, 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 yeah. you have a list of certain foods in your head. Right. And, and I go over them and pick. I think,
1: which one would I prefer? And I pick the one and I can often even give you details about why I prefer it. Right. I have experience of all that. For me, that is the essence of free will. Okay. So I have experience of it. I have experience of deliberation. I have experience of choosing, right. of choosing for reasons, for often for reasons I can articulate. The hardest case is, as you say, the one where like creme brulee and whatever, where I guess it's just all the same to me, right? I don't really have any motivating factor. Then who knows? Maybe I'll flip a coin and I'll say, you know why I chose it because it came heads, you know. But the picking a film now
0: is an, I mean, I, I think people feel that they are the thinker of their thoughts, right? In some sense, there's, there's yeah. a position of authorship, right? Like you, they are the thinker of their thoughts, aren't they? <laughs> well, not quite, not quite, not in the sense that if um, I mean, you wouldn't be if you were if there were an evil genius sending you the names of films. Through Wi-Fi to your brain, and uh, I could show you that the fact that you picked whatever Casablanca was determined in advance, right? Like that would be that would undercut the sense of personal freedom, right? So if that were happening, that's the antithesis of free will. And yet, what I'm what I'm going to suggest to you is that your actual experience of deliberation is totally compatible with that being true. I'm not saying it is true. I'm not saying there is an evil genius in the next room, although your genes and and inputs to your nervous system could be made to conform to that shape, you know, it's just deterministically. But I'm just saying your experience of deliberation is totally compatible with that cartoon case. And if it is compatible, in what sense is there an experience of free will?
1: Well, I have to get a a bit clearer about the case. As you described it, the evil genius just sent me a a list of options, right? And when you asked me what film, yeah, the various films kind of popped up in my mind, and I chose Mm -hmm. among them a particular one for particular reasons that I can articulate, and that seemed like a perfectly free choice among those options. Now, if you tell me, but did you choose the the menu? I wouldn't have even said, no, I chose the menu. The menu was just whatever happened to pop into my mind. That's not a paradigm... Free choice. This
0: actually connects nicely to the, the conversation about possibility we were having before. And I, I guess mm-hmm. this sort of motivates my interest in it. So I ask you to pick a film, and various candidates begin you know, percolating at the margins of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So you thought of more than one, and then there was some sort of competition among them. And then you, whether in real time or in retrospect, maybe came up with a a rationale for picking one over the other maybe maybe mm-hmm. one maybe one of them would be would be embarrassing to mention and you'd rather talk about something you know more respectable and so you pivoted to that one whatever you might have had your reasons but my argument is that all of that is fundamentally mysterious subjectively and you can't say like if no matter how much time you take if you if you bounce between two candidates, right? I mean, first of all, it is genuinely mysterious that hundreds of other films did not arise as candidates, right? That you weren't picking among those, mm-hmm. right? So, like, you absolutely know that I don't know Avatar is a film. Unless, let's, for argument's sake, let's assume Avatar was well, not one that occurred to you. It, it was not. <laughs> okay, but so in what sense were you free to think of Avatar when, in fact? your brain was in no position to think of Avatar.
1: Well, look, there's the obvious sense that actually I do have in my brain you know, an engram or whatever it is for the movie Avatar, the movies I've never heard of, I couldn't have thought of. There's a sense of could have that you can only think of movies you're familiar with. But if we rolled back the universe to that moment
0: a few moments ago when I asked you to think of a film... You would not think of Avatar, and we did that a trillion times in a row, you would not think of Avatar a trillion times in a row.
1: Right, but in the experience, the the part of the experience that to me, I focus on when I say, this is what free will feels like, Mm -hmm. is not the part where the list comes, it's the part where I choose among the list that's presented. (laughs) Okay, right. If you ask me where the list came from, I wouldn't say, oh, it's a paradigm act of free will that that list came up rather than some other list. I'd say I don't know. That was I don't know. That was just kind of random.
0: The fact that you literally could not think of Avatar means that you were not free to, in 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 the most important sense. You were not free to think of Avatar, even though we can we can easily claim that by reference to the laws of physics, of course you were you should have been free in the in in the abstract. You should have been free to think of Avatar, but in fact based on the, the microstructure of your brain and, and all of the synaptic weights, you were not free to think of Avatar, right? And it's just a fact of, the, of, the, of your brain that Avatar was not in the cards. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to say that the experience you have of choosing among the, the candidates you did think of is just as inscrutable, just as determined or stochastic or both, and just as inexplicable when you finally land on, like the fact that you went back and forth between two films for as long as you did and not a second longer is also something that if we rolled back the state of the universe, you'd repeat a trillion times in a row exactly as you, as you eeny, meeny, miny, moed it. And in that, there's
1: no, no, not even a semblance of what most people mean by freedom. But let me just let say, I didn't eeny, meeny, miny, moe anything. I, well, I didn't ever... It, that's a really random way to make a choice that we learn as kids. Okay, but, but so I then your reasons. That. But I, then, I know look, why look, look. I chose the one I chose. And in fact, it's because I really like the film. And that also explains why Avatar would, would probably not even percolate up because it is nowhere near the top of my list of favorite right. films, right? My brain would have been making a terrible mistake if understanding I was going to choose on the basis of which films I liked. It offered up avatar to me, right? Yeah. I would say brain. What are you thinking?
0: <laughs> okay, but so so let's say so let's say you're right about. I mean, the, obviously, we know that you could be confabulating about your reasons for thinking of the films you thought of, or, or choosing the films, choosing the film you chose among the ones that you thought of. That could have been not the reason at all. But let's say your reason is in fact psychologically true. It is still a wholly Clockwork fact about you that that reason was as effective as it w- was effective in this case and not ineffective, or that you didn't in the next moment subvert it f- with some other reason. Let's say your thinking process went, you know, I, I love, um, you know, I, I love the Godfather, uh, you know, Godfather one, but, uh, you know, Godfather two is probably better. I'm going to go with Godfather two. Mm-hmm. But you're in no, I'm saying subjectively, As a matter of just subjective fact, you're in no position to know why that thought inserted itself where it did, and that it was effective behaviorally, and why it why it wasn't superseded by yet a further thought of, you know, but actually, Godfather One is the the, that's the whole franchise. Go, you got to go with Godfather One, right? Like, why didn't that thought appear? You're you're totally capable of thinking it. Again, the buck has to stop somewhere, and Subjectively speaking, where it stops is always totally mysterious. Even if you can retrospectively say, "Well, this is totally in line with the sort of thing I want to do, wish I would have done, will never regret." Granted, those are that's all psychologically important, right? It's important to be to not just have some massive case of alien hand syndrome where you're doing all these things that you can't explain and. You have no story about, and mm-hmm. you and you think, "Oh my God, my life is just chaos. I don't know what I'm going to do next." I mean, so we want to be predictable to ourselves. We want to do things in character, et cetera, um, within certain limits. But my point is that if you actually drill down on any moment of deliberation, no matter how you know muscular it is, you land on a variety of things that are incompatible with what people claim they think they have whenever, whenever the conversation turns but to free will.
1: Look, I you you're, you're keep looking for a, a moment of mystery or something. And mm-hmm. it's certainly possible that you know, as soon as this interview is over, a film will pop into my head, such that in retrospect, I said, gosh, if I thought of that, I would have chosen that. Okay? And why didn't I? And I kind of knocked my head. And I don't know why. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I, I can't explain all of the inner workings of my mind. I don't purport to be able to. But I don't see why failing to think of that, for that to bubble up as an option at the beginning, takes away my free will in what I was aware of, which was choosing among the options that did bubble up and choosing for very specific articulable reasons. Now, the less you have articulable reasons, Though, of course, you're going you're, you're gonna to end up saying, yeah, I can't really say why I did this uh, rather than that um, in the same situation. Maybe tomorrow I would make the opposite choice. These are cases where you're really quite indifferent. But my point is that those are not paradigm cases of free will. Those are anti-paradigm cases of free will. Those are hmm. eeny, meeny, miny, mo cases, as you would say. Maybe I just do something intentionally random because I can't think of a good reason to do one or the other and I have to do something. So I do something to make the choice for me, as it were. That's not a Mm -hmm. paradigm case of free will. That's a paradigm case of of handing over my free will because my free will doesn't care.
0: (laughs) For you, the paradigm case of free will is where you most helplessly want to do the thing on offer. And you do it with hundred percent of your but, but, will.
1: Why? Why? Where did helpless come from?
0: Well, because be, I really because don't it,
1: like to eat broken glass. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't exactly. feel helpless yeah. when I you're reject not broken you're, glass you're, for the creme brulee. No, but, it, but it's almost like the last thing feel.
0: It's it's almost like you're saying it, like this movie quiz would become more and more ex- exemplary of free will if you only ever thought about one movie. And you loved it with your whole being. Yeah. Right. The like, more. So I like can, I, I say, I, think of a movie and all you ever think about is Rocky Three, hmm and then all your, the more because, freely
1: I will choose that. Absolutely. Because that's a condition. My of, choice of is explained by, by my preference. But that No, no, it's preference. Yeah, okay. But it's because I like it better. It's my preference. I'm getting what I want. But so so <laughs> and it's very clear what I want. <laughs> so if you
0: if you were the sort of person who if whenever someone said Think of a movie. You thought of uh, of Rocky Three because it's the only movie mm-hmm. you, you that could ever surface to the top of your your conscious mind. You would say that was a, a condition of, of greatest. Well, it, freedom
1: I, I don't know. I mean, if someone said think of a bad movie and I kept getting the same movie, then it would start to a compulsive, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking, you know, if I'm if I'm going to choose a movie and my basic. My, my basic decision value here is that it's a good movie, mm. then yeah, there's some that come up. Of course, if, if that was the only one that came up in every circumstance of every choice, um, no matter how characterized, then that would look absolutely monomaniacal and kind of crazy. Mm. But yeah, that's not the situation. I sort of feel like I, I thought I knew the basis on which I would choose. My mind then offered up some pretty plausible candidates. That on further consideration, one popped out for me for reasons I could probably articulate. That doesn't feel constrained or helpless, just the opposite. The more I can articulate why I did what I did, the freer I feel.
0: Well, well, yeah, but this this all comes down to feeling. I mean, we know, first of all, we know those articulations are often wrong. It's like you bring someone into the lab and you, you give them a list of words to read and they don't know that you're priming them in some way, and then you ask them a question, and then they freely choose their you know, favorite brand of laundry detergent, and you have just massively biased them toward tide because you mm-hmm. gave them something to read about the ocean. Mm-hmm. And in another condition, you bias them toward whatever's the opposite of tide. Mm-hmm. And so we know people are often wrong there, but even if right, in the end, something just happens, right? Like you go, you, you deliberate as much as you deliberate and not an instant more and you're in no position to n- ever know why it was not an instant more or less, But right?
1: it, it, again, you're, you, you keep focusing on the cases where I'm probably going to be indecisive because no. there's no obvious. I mean, if you give me this very clear choice between creme brulee and broken glass, yeah, mm-hmm. I won't deliberate a second more. It's obvious which is better. It's obvious which I won't. Why would I deliberate longer? Am I going to think, if I sit here and c- contemplate the broken glass for another five minutes, it'll all of a sudden look yummy to me. I mean, it ends because, of course, it's a decisive ending. I know what my preferences are in that case. It's not even close. Okay,
0: but then, insofar as you make someone, if you simplify their psychology down to, they're always acting on the base of a, on the basis of a, preference, so strong, that it has a hundred percent chance of being efficacious. Right. I mean, that's, uh, the other name for that is a
1: compulsion. But that—that's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to say our psychology is always like that. I'm saying those instances are clear instances of free choices. And and so the, if if there's in, there's nothing in the internal feel of making a clear choice like that that feels to me unfree, just the opposite. Now, of course, in everyday life, there are all kinds of complicated decisions and all kinds of many different aspects that have to be considered and incomparable goods that sort of have to be compared. And it's hard, and it takes a long time to deliberate, and you're often not sure that you made a good decision. I mean, I'm certainly not saying the example I'm giving you is my prime example of human psychology. I'm just saying it's a clear example of a decision that would strike people as a completely free decision, all the more free because it was so clear to them what they wanted to do.
0: Well, there's no I mean, in the case of creme brulee and broken glass, there, there is no decision to make because they, they want the creme brulee, they don't want the broken glass, they're going to reach for what they want. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a, which do you like more pleasure or pain? I'll take pleasure. Mm-hmm. But the, the crucial bit for most people is the could have done otherwise piece. Like in the case of ordering creme brulee over broken glass, they're not going to revisit the decision and say, "I could, you know, it turned out differently than I was expecting, and I, I wish I had done otherwise, and I could have done otherwise. I'm, well, I'm culpable uh, for that decision. I,
1: I have a, a bit of that. When I talk about deliberation, right, del- deliberation involves considering different alternative courses of action. Mm-hmm. If someone doesn't deliberate at all, that is, they literally, only one course of action even appears to them to be possible, Yeah. right? Then, then freedom is gone. Of course, then right. you're, you, because you know you're <laughs> there's all, you don't have a choice. So part of part of the paradigm cases of of free actions are deliberate actions, and part of deliberation is having a menu of options that you consider to be possibilities. That brings us back into the realm of possibility, because if you if you that's part of of the deliberate you know the process of deliberation itself. My point is just that if you clearly do deliberate and, and, and you, you make a choice after deliberation on very clear articulable grounds, that doesn't make it to me feel any aspect less free than if I deliberate and I just kind of feel indifferent after deliberation and I say, ah, I don't know, the options all seem kind of the same to me. That looks less free to me than I just, I say, flip a coin, right? Not my let the coin decide, right? You seem to
0: be saying that when under conditions where deliberation is most biased toward a certain outcome, which is to say that you're you're being pushed by something like a compulsion. I mean, a desire that's so likely to win that you know it really can't be second-guessed. That gets you more freedom than mm-hmm. in a, under conditions where you really can coolly deliberate among options that are that are almost indistinguishable. But, and then you pick one.
1: No, no, you're, you're mistaking the strength of the reasons with compulsion or the strength of the reasons with not being cool. If I'm walking down the street and it occurs to me, you know, some, some old lady has just taken a bunch of cash out of an ATM and it occurs to me, I could bonker on the head and, mm. and take that money and I don't do it because it's immoral and I would never do something like that. I don't feel compelled or like under the grip of something. It's like these are my values. I'm living out my values. That is freedom—is living out your values.
0: Okay, but that is strong enough. Just that's just kind of a, a negative strength because if you if the moment you begin thinking about robbing a little old lady, you you, you your your revulsion over your own actions, you know, gets it's the opposite of a compulsion, I would say. But
1: well, but it's it's. It's something that I will do 100, 100% of the time, I'll make the same decision, perfectly predictable that I won't bonker right. over the head. Um, right. Perfectly good reasons why I won't. I can tell you my motivations. I, I, I just don't see, whenever I'm in a situation where I, can, I could predict, and other people could predict perfectly well. Mm. I mean, if you ask my wife to predict, if you offer me something much simpler, strawberry or chocolate ice cream, she can predict I'm going to take chocolate. And I can predict I'm going to take chocolate because I can yeah. freely choose yeah. and I know I like chocolate better than strawberry. Why wouldn't I take I the chocolate? I could say you're right. Under
0: those conditions, <laughs> you're right
1: to take chocolate. I agree. Yeah, well, but it's, it's, it's through no free will of my own that like I feel like free choice, that. right? I, I know I have two options here. No, um, no but it doesn't- I, I do doesn't, have something to deliberate. The deliberation can be real short and sweet because I know which of those two I prefer.
0: <laughs> but it doesn't seem free in the sense that you know, like, I, I don't feel free to want strawberry more than I want chocolate, right? And no, I'm, I, I, you I, I, don't grant choose you,
1: your preferences.
0: Grant you, given what I want, I'm happy to get the chocolate. Yeah. But I'm under no illusions that, that the synaptic weights around strawberry and chocolate are something that I have tuned. Rather, I'm right. living out. absolutely. I'm, I'm helplessly, I introduce another <laughs> piece of rhetoric you don't like, I'm helplessly living out the consequences of that tuning.
1: Look, I I certainly don't think I chose to prefer chocolate over other uh, other flavors. It's a fact Mm. about me. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe, who knows? But I have it. That's part of what makes me me. My preferences Mm. and my desires and what I value is part of what makes me the person I I am. And living in accordance with those values and choosing in accordance with those values makes me live a free life to be the person I am. But if you demand that, no, you had to choose your preferences before you, you know, of course you'll get into an infinite regress. But why would yeah. you think you have to do that? Why do I have to be worried? Why, why should I wait? You know, spend nights worrying about where my preference for chocolate came from? I have it.
0: There are lots of preferences that people have that they're, they don't have a second order desire for, right? So they, you know, people are addicted to mm-hmm. alcohol or something else, that, sure. and, they, and they, they, they notice the negative effects of this in their lives, and, they, and nevertheless, they find it very difficult to change their behavior, and, sure. and so you know there's and all of that. The,
1: and then there's but, a conflict mm-hmm. between, as it were, who you are and who you want to be. Yeah. And that's a psychologically very difficult situation, and, and everybody, you know, then, then you feel conflicted because you are conflicted. You have, as it were, first-order desires and second-order you desires know. about your desires, and they conflict with each other and you're trying to resolve them, and maybe you don't have enough willpower to, to resolve them the way you, as it were, your higher, more rational line wants to. I'm not denying any of that mm. psychology. It's, it's, it's very compelling, and that's part of also what makes people human, is, is these conflicts. But, but we're not all conflicts, and where we, we're not conflicts. We're living our best lives when we can you know, realize our preferences and, and express our lives and choose our lives among many different paths expressing what we value.
0: Yeah, I'm obviously not disputing the importance of being able to do what you value and and the difference between expressing your preferences and, and not. I'm just saying that when I pay close attention to what it's like to do all that, everything is still just happening all by itself. I mean, on some level that it, and this is not to say that there's no difference between voluntary behavior and involuntary behavior. I mean, yes, there's, there's a difference between having a tremor and executing a deliberate you know, movement of your mm-hmm. hand, say. Mm-hmm. But the difference is a, it doesn't strike me as a difference in the kind of authorship and agency most people claim to have. It's still, everything is still just happening. There's just different things are happening in that case. So, for instance, one kind of action is associated with you know, conscious intentions and can be stopped on the basis of conscious intention, and, and another kind of action isn't associated. You know, tremor is not associated with mm-hmm. conscious intention, and you can't consciously stop it, say. So there are phenomenological differences, but none of them have this the same kind of anchor to a sense of self, who is the true author of thoughts and intentions and preferences.
1: But wh- wh- why would you, I mean, again, go back to the ancients. The, the, the ancient skeptics used to talk about the painter Apelles who was trying to paint the foam on a horse's mouth mm-hmm. and kept trying and trying and got, just couldn't right, get right. it right and got very frustrated and finally threw the sponge yeah. um, in anger at the, at the canvas and the sponge made the perfect foam, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think Apelle's can rightfully not feel so proud of mm-hmm. that result as he could have if he thought, oh, you know what would really work well? To use a sponge. And he made a plan and he picked up the sponge and he you know, pressed the sponge and said, oh, all this time I've been trying to get it and I figured out how to do it. And he would you know, be brimming with pride because this is something he did, right? He worked out, he thought through. If it just happens because he gets angry and throws the sponge and as it were by chance it does the right thing. He has no right to take a lot of pride in that. Right? Yeah, and 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 free will and free actions and blame. I mean, these are associated with credit and blame, right? Who gets credit and who gets blame, and who can be ashamed of what?
0: Final question, yeah. the, very much on on this point, and I, I realize you have been through no free will of your own, and extraordinarily generous with your
1: time. So thank you. We're coming up on three hours here. Oh, it's fun conversation. I'm you know I'm yeah. enjoying it. <sighs> All right, so. I've been free to leave at any time. (laughs) Yes,
0: you think you have. (laughs) All right. So this this strikes me as a a bit of a moral conundrum around this issue of responsibility, and um, responsibility functions kind of like a mirage for me. And uh, I'll give you the the clearest case, a a non-moral one. So imagine the best golfer in the world. Let's say that's Tiger Woods, although probably Mm -hmm. currently isn't, and he is he's taking a very easy putt, you know, a three foot putt, which he, he would make, you know, 999 times out of a thousand at least. Mm -hmm. But on this occasion, he misses it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you take a, a, a not a very good golfer, uh, someone like me and I take that putt and I, and I miss it. Mm -hmm. Now with me, you know, you could tell me, you know, you you really should have made that putt, but it's not that surprising that I would miss it because I'm not a very good golfer whereas with Tiger Woods he he really really should have made that putt and he didn't and yet in his case when he misses the putt it says much less about him than it mm-hmm. says about me like you know when i miss the putt basically you think all right well you're just not that good a golfer when he misses the putt something is wrong with the universe right like his his culpability for missing that putt is very hard to pin on him because He's the best golfer in the world who doesn't miss that sort of putt, and he's not going to miss it next time. So, when he misses it, he's not guilty by reason of bad luck on some level, and yet he's the most competent person in the world to make that putt. If anyone should have made the putt, it's him, and yet it's just a genuine mystery that he missed it. Now, we might be able to figure out the physics of why he missed it, but the physics aren't going to land on him in the normal sense because you can't say he should have tried harder, you can't say he should have practiced more, you can't say he should have had more natural talent because he's the best who's ever played the game. Mm-hmm. Now, take a moral example of this where you have the, like the, the most ethical person who's ever lived, who, the person who's proven his wisdom and his compassion more than anyone else in every relevant circumstance. And then that person does something absolutely horrific and worthy of condemnation, right? Mm-hmm. That's precisely the person for whom we would say, "Wait a minute, there's no way that's really a reflection of his character or her character. Something insane has happened. It, it, like th- this is so out of character. The person is sort of all, you know not guilty by reason of insanity almost by definition, right? So where?" How is it that in the case of greatest competence in each of these cases, we find it harder and harder, the more you dial up competence, the more you dial mm-hmm. up they should have been able to do otherwise. The fact that they didn't do otherwise seems to let them off the hook. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. So let me, let me try and talk through this case. Let me start with the, I think the golf case and the moral case are rather different, but let me start with the golf case. Mm-hmm. So we all agree that Tiger Woods is a more skilled putter than you are. Um, and, and, and no doubt if, if we had the two of you do 100 or 1,000 putts from the same distance, we would find that Tiger Woods would sink a heck of a lot more of them than you did, right? I mean, he's more skilled. There's no question about that. Uh, normally, in a, in a, in a, in that kind of activity, we don't expect those skills to be absolutely perfect, right? No bowler mm. only bull strikes. No, you know, it's just not within the human capacity to have such preternatural control over everything as to get it right all the time. Nonetheless, Tiger Woods is perfectly skilled. Now, what should he say when he misses the putt? I don't know. I mean, if if he feels like he did everything the way he normally does it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't go in, the right attitude for him to take is well, you know, sometimes it doesn't go in. I mean, there's only so much you can do. If his mind wandered, if he, you know, if he looked up, if he felt like his stance was wrong, if he can identify some flaw, some particular flaw, then he can beat up on himself and say, I had a lapse, right? That was a real lapse. That lapse was my fault. So I think that's kind of, you know, how to deal with that case depends really on. What, what was going on in Tiger Woods.
0: But he's the kind of, precisely the kind of person for whom a lapse like that is least likely and, le- and least in character, right? So like, no, what, maybe, if he has that but, lapse.
1: But there's just a question in the, in the cases you described it, you could, you could fill out the case where he did have a lapse, right? He just lost concentration and he's aware mm-hmm. of it. Or maybe he didn't lose concentration. Maybe from the inside, it felt like every other good putt he's ever made and right. it just bounced wrong or whatever. You know, I, I, now, in the case of the moral person, the thing is, the exercise of that moral decision-making, it's not like a skill like putting that we don't expect it to be perfect. We think, look, you know, you, you're just deliberating over various courses of action. If one course of action is clearly immoral, you should never choose it, ever, ever, ever. Right. Well, okay. um, let's, not, let, let's say yeah. it's
0: not deliberate. Let's, don't make it so deliberative. Let's just say he or she says something you know, absolutely cruel. So make it more putt-like, make it more briefer. It's just like the, thing, the next thing they say is just you know, an expression of well, you know, genuine yeah, contempt is, for another person.
1: As you fill out the case, it becomes harder to understand. Yeah. In other words, the nicer the person is, and the more they've been nice their whole life, if they make some all of a sudden some cutting, cruel remark, Mm -hmm. we of course are astounded and we don't know quite what to make of it. I mean, one of your thoughts is, yeah, there's something literally they had a, a, a stroke. I mean, something's happened to them. Maybe you think, gosh, maybe they were never that nice all along. Maybe it was all part of a facade. Maybe I didn't understand that all the time they've been having these internal, you know, cutting thoughts that they just never express. I think you would have to give me a lot more detail about what went on. And the detail isn't their brain did something, right? Of course, physically their brain did something, but you know, the brain having a hemorrhage is a very different than <laughs> you know, a brain that has been systematically suppressing nasty thoughts all its life. I think it's just an underdescribed case. Now, you're making it, of course, very puzzling because you set up the case to be puzzling. You have someone suddenly acting very out of character we don't know what to make of it but
0: my point is that the the when we're going to apportion blame for either one of these kinds of failures a you know a, an athletic failure or a mm-hmm. moral failure mm-hmm. it seems strange to me that the more competent you make the agent the harder it gets to blame them for failure like it's much easier to blame me for a missed putt or a cruel comment than it is to blame the best putter in the world or the best person in the world.
1: Well, I, I yeah, I guess I don't. I, I personally would not have that. I, I, and now we're just having you know intuitive reactions mm-hmm. to the cases. Um, the duffer who missed it, I don't feel like beating up on him. Oh, you know, I, look, you're just you haven't had that much practice. You're not that good. Don't worry about it. You know, it's more or less blame is often blame is usually where there was an alternative within their power that they didn't do and it is it it, it is less in the power of a, of a duffer to control the course of the ball than it's within the power of the of the pro to control the course of the ball right
0: i guess it's an inverted u shaped function for me so like if, yeah if someone really doesn't know how to play golf or they're you know a moral lunatic you know incapable of any predictable ethical behavior well then We don't apportion any blame in either case because their behavior Mm -hmm. is effectively random. Mm -hmm. But the moment you become skilled in either domain, you reach something like a peak of blameworthiness. But if
1: you get any better from that point, it begins to go down. But can can I just ask you, because look, I don't play a lot of golf. I Mm. would have thought Blame comes in in the clearest way when you can point out a specific thing like, oh, you took your eye off the ball, yeah. or oh, your stance yeah. wasn't right. I mean, the kind of thing that we think is easily correctable. You don't just say, oh, I blame you because the ball didn't go in, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's, you, know, that you, you blame someone when you can identify something you feel they could have easily controlled That they didn't do that they could have easily done, but no, it's
0: rarely it's rarely that. I mean, in the coarsest case, it it's that. But you know, when you're talking about a truly great golfer Mm. or even a good golfer failing to hit the ball well, or or in in the easiest case to sink a short putt, it's often genuinely inscrutable. It's like you didn't make Mm -hmm. you didn't make an obvious error. It's just it didn't feel maybe it didn't feel right as you were taking the club back as you're, you're beginning your swing, but mm-hmm. you're just, you know, you weren't aware of, of not concentrating as much as you
1: usually do, right. and yet you just didn't hit it right. Right. My, my reaction for what it's worth is that I wouldn't feel either on myself or putting on anybody else blame in that kind of a circumstance. I I would say, please stop blaming yourself. (laughs) You're you're making your life much more miserable than it needs to be. You you already missed the shot. I mean, a kind of stoic response here, right? You already missed the shot. That's bad enough. Now you're making your life worse by beating yourself up without even anything you Mm. could say. If you could say to yourself, next time, don't take your eyes off the ball, right? If you could say to yourself something that would be you know, implementable to improve that would be one thing, but if you can't if nothing seemed wrong and it just didn't go in, and then on top of that, you're like yelling at yourself, I would say, "Hey, chill out, you know, <laughs> enjoy life
0: well that, that's what i it, you know when I translate in, into my no free will universe, when I translate blame it it, it lands there. I, I think blame mm-hmm. is not an admonishment that the past could have or should have been different than it was. it's an admonishment if if you're talking about. Behavior that is all, that is at all corrigible—it's uh, an admonishment to try harder or, or do something different in the future, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know, have, you're trying to correct future behavior as opposed mm-hmm. to rewrite the past.
1: But right, and, but then you need to articulate the change, right? I mean, if yeah. it's if it's just that it didn't go in and you can't identify anything that. You know, you should There's have nothing been doing, to learn from. Yeah. Then, yeah, how but, can you but, learn from that?
0: But right? that's the <laughs> crazy. That's that's what's so crazy about the best in the world failing. It's like it, yeah. it. They they seem to be off the hook because you can't plausibly say that they they should change anything about what they do. They just got unlucky. It, it just it looks like you know it, it looks like a stroke or mm-hmm. you know some other form of bad luck, right? Yeah, and it wasn't sometimes them. that happens. Yeah. And yeah.
1: Some things are just bad luck.
0: Well, Tim, there's a we could easily spend three more hours, but uh, the human bladder prevents it.
1: <laughs> well, b- before we go, I want to take advantage of you, or actually this opportunity, mm-hmm. if I can, just for sure. a minute. Yeah. Because at this particular moment, one of the things I'm doing is I've been the founder and director of this institute, the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics. Which is a bunch of people who are nice. interested in the, some of the questions we've been talking about, about foundations of physics and different ways of understanding quantum mechanics. And at this very moment, we're at a kind of critical point trying to raise funds to, to buy ourselves uh, a campus where we can, we can live. And so, if anybody listening is interested in supporting that kind of work, we have a GoFundMe, or you could just try johnbellinstitute.org. Mm-hmm and we would appreciate any support that anybody might feel freely or unfreely to nice. to contribute to us. So I just I I just wanted you know this is one shot in a lifetime for That's us great. to do this That's and great. so I, I I just wanted to take advantage of your audience in a very selfish way. Um, yeah. And thank you. <laughs>
0: That's uh, happy to do it. And so um just to be clear, it, it's an entirely virtual organization. No, 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 no. we are it?
1: trying to buy, buy a physical location. That's the point. But, but no, but have, you, do,
0: you don't have a physical location currently? I mean, you're not. Well, well we have one
1: you? we've been using, but we've been renting it and okay. it's for sale. And we, we built a, a lecture hall there for putting things on. You know, it's been our intention to purchase this, but we're now at the point where we actually have to have to come up with the have to come up with the funds to purchase it. And uh, so, where yeah. where is it currently? It's in Croatia. It's in, okay. on the island of Far, in a little oh, tiny town called Bojanac which nobody's heard of. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful location, and we have a very nice lecture room. And we've run summer schools and workshops already. Uh, we got killed by COVID, of course, so everything mm-hmm. was put on hold. It started right before COVID. So, do you have I'm a getting ramped up again?
0: Uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't looked at the, the website. So, do, mm-hmm. do you have um, relevant information uh, on the website about your yes. collaborators the, the, and all that? The, yes,
1: right. uh, everybody the board of directors, all the cool. members, the faculty, everything is listed. If you go to www.johnbellinstitute.org, Correct. you can find out everything you'd ever want to know about what we do and who's doing it.
0: Wonderful. Well, um, I hope this is the first of. Many conversations, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it.